This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Okay, we're live. Welcome. Welcome to the 46th episode of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. He's Dr. Gray Carr. Um, today, we're going to talk about Martin Luther King. Uh, yesterday was his actual b- birthday. Uh, Monday, we celebrate his holiday. But before we get into that, uh, I watched One Night in Miami last night. And I thought it would be a nice entry point because um, I don't know what you have planned because I never do. I'm along for this ride like everyone else. But I think it's important for us to to reflect on Martin Luther King's legacy through the lens of how it frees us moving forward. And that should be the framework. So as I'm watching this brilliant piece of art directed by the great Regina King, starring four incredible actors playing Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Muhammad Ali. I'm watching a brotherhood, you know, a conversation uh, that came about because of Muhammad Ali at that time, Cassius Clay beating Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world. He was 22 years old. And all of these men are friends, friends before fame, friends after. And I'm watching freedom suss out in so many different ways through conversations with Jim Brown and Malcolm X. Sam Cooke and Malcolm X had a clash. Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke had a conversation. And in each conversation, Dr. Carr, I'm listening to men in their 20s and 30s talk about freedom through different lenses. This is an era of verses where everything is this one against that one, Booker T versus W.E.B., Martin versus Malcolm. And what I'm learning is that the more we learn, the more our perspective on what freedom should look like should change. But also as people sitting in this seat, you and I, our job, our role, we had a conversation recently about reading. And you said the best part of reading is rereading because you come back to a book with more knowledge and understanding and perspective and more wisdom, and you see things you didn't see before. And I'm imagining life is the exact same way where we're collecting all of these puzzle pieces if we're actively living. And then as we start to put these pieces together, it forms a picture that starts to become clearer and clearer as we collect more and more pieces. So I'm not gonna give away this movie because there's so many nuggets in it. And I wrote down a bunch of notes and I was like, nah, that's not fair to people who didn't watch it. Did you watch it? I did. Oh, and, oh. and and I was thank you for putting um on your YouTube site uh a snippet of the interview you did with those brothers. Um I don't know if you, you know if folks if you haven't seen it, you know, if you're watching now, it's the same YouTube channel. Go scroll back a couple and watch watch these several minutes of conversation. Um because that comes through in the ensemble. You know, I mean, the guy that plays Malcolm X is a Brit. And so I had to ask him about that. because you so know, funny to hear him talk to you. <laughs> but you know how we're we're so caught up right now in that, which never was a thing. You know, we didn't have a problem with Harry Belafonte not being a, a foundational black person or Sidney Poitier not being a fan, foundational black. But we have a problem with the Brits right now. And I, and I get it. I get it. Because there's so many roles that could go to different people. But this brother put his damn thing down. But the guy that played Muhammad Ali, towards the end of the interview, I don't, I, I don't know how much of that interview we played. I think we played the whole thing. He jumped into his defense, and I was like, "This is the future of what 
community is supposed to look like. But we are the, not the in a past battle. And the past and the future, because this beef is a new thing. Okay. All right. So so lay it up for us, Dr. Carr. I just I just finished, you know, I watched the, the end of it this morning. I started watching it last night and I was like, oh my God, this th these conversations are the conversations we must be having right now around capitalism and how we we you know uh fund the things that we want to do. Sam Cooke, I remember watching a documentary. I don't know if you watched the two killings of Sam Cooke, but I learned about this man in a way that He's different in this, but there's shades of that same ownership of self. Jim Brown, the athlete, you know, at one point, you know, Malcolm says, you're 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 our weapon. And he's like, no, no, we're not. We're not your weapon. You know, Muhammad Ali, 22 brash, trying to figure it out, you know, through this spiritual journey, but also ownership, but not quite sure of himself. Yeah. You know, we need all of that energy to get we to do. where we need to go. And I was just so pleased that through Regina King's lens, she was able to talk about colorism. She was, I mean, she, man, okay, let me. You get, you got me pop, man, I'm thinking. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 because I'm just thinking there, there, there are a number of pieces that have been written um, about and around each of those uh, brothers, of course. But I'm thinking now about even context. There's a lot of stuff that's come out recently has been published. Um, there's a book called Bullets and Ballots over what was going on in Cleveland during the time. You know, a lot of those folks are still alive. So if you want know about the Black Power Movement in Cleveland, uh, which Jim Brown is connected to very intimately. There are a lot of folks you can talk to still in Cleveland. And then there's, an, there's another piece on the question of business and Black Power. Because we've, we've all seen that famous photo of Brown there with Ali when Ali is meeting with the athletes. And the youngest cat in that photograph, who is still around, in addition to Jim Brown, who of those four in, in the film, in fact, the, the name of Jim Brown's first memoir was Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. So, I mean, he's still the physically, but the youngest cat in that photograph, when I, when, they, when Ali comes to meet with them, uh, Brown's got the juice to bring the meeting into Cleveland, is Lou Alcindor, who we, of course, now know as, uh, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, in part because a lot of those guys became Muslims because of the nation and mouth. So, I mean... Brown, it's interesting because there's so much scholarship around that of talking about that. But go ahead. And and but the nation gets gets a, a bright light on it in this film as well, and deservedly, because I think we should start to examine every aspect of, you know, I, I think we like to glorify some things as well because we're so oppressed that we don't want any blemishes. You you can't talk greasy about any of us. Right. Outwardly, that's correct. Y'all keep your mouths, as you say, sew your lips up as it relates to black people. <laughs> as well, old folks used to say, I was overhearing them with my lips sewn shut. I should probably change that metaphor. The no, Congo have a better one. The Congo are like when you're young, when you get to the age where you can be in the circle, but they still not sure if you have anything that you need to say, they put straw in your mouth. And you know you've reached a level of maturity when they turn to you and say, okay, take the straw out of your mouth and tell us what you think. And once you said that, they said, now put the straw back in your mouth. You know you've done it for real when you can come up to the circle with no straw in your mouth. I love, you I, I, but, I love, <laughs> but I think it's time for us to start to take the straw out and yeah. talk honestly, which we're going to have an honest conversation today. But I also want to say hello to everyone because I was I came in so excited. I forgot to say hi. Hi, class. How are hello, you? Everyone. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Hit the thumbs up if you're enjoying what you're Please. hearing. Share it when it's over. We Please. appreciate this fellowship uh, because because it's important that we have these conversations in these safe spaces. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump out now. All right. Thank you. No, no. The two of us, I, I love the dialogue. 
so this is what we we should be doing and and this is interesting in so many ways because we know that the king is around in 64 when ali takes that title in miami uh that's february 1964 i mean we know malcolm literally has almost to the day one year to live i mean he is assassinated on february 21st 1965 and so it's interesting to see that interaction between these folks and of course you know sam cook who we we all know all of his music and we know that that one song that he composes before he is killed under mysterious circumstances so to speak because the narrative falls apart anybody seen that documentary and particularly if you've read there's a big thick bi a biography of sam cook i'm trying to remember the name of it uh, actually it's so funny that's one of the first books that um Nick Cannon and I discussed when we were doing a book a week reading and discussing because you know he was talking about the fact that I think at one point he had been linked to a Sam Cooke biopic. He said, "You mean let's read about Sam Cooke because Sam Cooke, as a as a figure who wanted to own his masters, and of course you see as as you know that documentary, you see the 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 the, the thievery in microcosm of what happened to Sam Cooke is what happens in black it, it, to, to us since we got put on those boats the only thing y'all want from us is our labor our creativity uh, who are who are you you racial capitalism in this case very specific you who still make money out sam cook but at any rate you know cook when he records the change is going to come by many accounts it isn't even malcolm you know it is attested that that's, that was dr king's one of his favorite songs a change is going to come so even when spike lee introduces that song near the end of his biopic on Malcolm X as Malcolm is driving to the Audubon ballroom. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many parallels, but when we stop to think about it, all of this takes place within a, a handful of years in the 1960s. All oh, of no. <laughs> And the thing again, among people who are in their 20s and 30s, Oh, no. thinking so deeply about the future, the world, Black people in a way that, you know, as, as you and I sit here, I'm like, our role is to make sure that we allow people to have perspective, to suss it out, to drop the breadcrumbs, to, to make sure that we give all of the information so that they can make these groundbreaking decisions that will take us into the next place. But there were so many lessons, you know, the battle around ownership, you know, and, and Malcolm contemplating his mortality in this moment and making some decisions and changes. Even that, you know, Martin Luther King had evolved towards the end of his life. We, you know, you've said this on, on, in this classroom, you know, I have a dream and all of this. What Martin said to Harry Belafonte in his last days was, I fear that I have integrated my people into a burning house. Mm -hmm. So the question on the table today, as, as I watch one night in Miami is, do we, come with buckets of water to help extinguish the fire? Do we get out of the house, let the let the fire burn, burn, mother, burn, burn, ah. let it burn. The roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let it burn. Do we do that? Three, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. So, uh, I think that's the question. And as an entry point to, to, to Martin, as quotes are going to be flooding the internets of things on Monday, you know, we got a national holiday. Shout out to Stevie Wonder and a host of other people. No question. And well, if you what? haven't gotten to get, get, get good Scott Heron's book, The Last Holiday, he tells the story about how Martin Luther King's birthday became a national holiday. Now, Gil, of course, is uh, an ancestor. You know, I went to the memorial service in Riverside and, and you know, on the west side in New York. 
But um, but Gil tells the story because Stevie Wonder, of course, is the is the cultural icon that propels it. And so, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Keep going. Oh no, I was just I just I wanted you to to go. I'm throwing it to you in terms of all right. I'll come back in. Uh, yeah. No, what am I doing? Okay, there we go. Uh, as we as we contemplate Ma- Malcolm uh, Martin Martin Luther King, and to me, it's a convergence, right? Because I think they were, well, they were both evolving. You know, I don't know who is not evolving in their thirties. Who's not who's not, who's not who's not contemplating life differently? You know, and both men with children, wives thinking about their future and their mortality at the same time. But what I was thinking about, Sam Cooke did it differently and Malcolm put it in your face and they both ended up mysteriously dead. Not mysterious at all, you know? So so what is the pathway to freedom? If you, Jim Brown talks about this, you have agency at some point, you, you are going down that path and it's still gonna always be met with opposition because in this country, black agency is an affront to this democracy. What do we do with that? I don't have a good answer that a good single answer. And I think, you know, there, there's a there's a there's a statement that Malcolm X once made and wrote was compiled as a little there's a little pamphlet book called Malcolm X on Afro-American History. It's a nice little thing, particularly for young people, because it's very small, very readable. A couple of speeches that Malcolm gave some quotes. Well, one of the quotes that is very popular is, uh, of Malcolm's is, you know, of all of our studies, his history is the one that is best prepared to reward all research. And I think we find the answer to what we do next in what we've done before. It's no different than any other life practice. The thing you do the most is the thing you do the best, more often than not. And what you've raised in terms of parallels is very important to say that these men and women who were uh, around at the time, let's, let's, uh, let's remember, we all remember Rome, 1960. And there have been stuff, has been stuff written about, I think David Moran's is, I'm looking around like I can go find the book, his book called Rome 1960 that talks about this in part, but then there are a lot of different books uh, where you know, remember Muhammad Ali is part of the United States Olympic delegation. He wins the gold medal that year in boxing in Rome. Uh, Wilma Rudolph from Mama Mater, Tennessee A&I. Uh, there's a book uh, Wyoming Atias has published recently called Tiger Bell, which talks about those Tennessee State Tiger Bells, of which she was one. May Fags, Wyoming Atias. Um my goodness, I start thinking about them. And of course, the, the one who we know best of all, um, the great Wilma Rudolph. Uh, and of course, we know there was a biopic uh, called Wilma. I think Denzel was in it as a young actor. But at any rate, um, you know, she was part of that team. And it's very interesting because the politics is beginning to inform uh, even the Olympics at that stage. Because we know the Olympics is an international competition, but these are athletes first. By the end of that decade, when they're in Mexico City, 1968, and you know, you can read Harry Edwards, the revolt of the Black Power Athlete, 
you know, Edwards is, is there in a kind of advisory capacity organizing coming out of the West Coast, San Jose State. We know, of course, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. John Carlos, Dr. Carlos is still traveling around. You know, he's doing some work right now, some very important work trying to help next generations think through how we build power and organize collectively. Uh, both of those brothers were punished as part of that Olympic delegation with the Black Power Fist, we know, and, and those who were not Black from other countries who were in solidarity with them. But by 1968, of course, Ali is being mercilessly attacked in the country of his birth. Uh, he went from, at the beginning of the decade, the, the so-called Louisville Lip, Cassius Clay, you know, the name of, ironically, an enslaver in Kentucky, uh, and uh, to Muhammad Ali. And, uh, you know, it's all fun and games when these athletes are laughing and joking. It's not so funny when they turn to politics. And so, you know, Jesse Owens was the darling in 1936 when he defeated Hitler. And of course, I went to Ohio State. In fact, I went to Ohio State, one of Jesse Owens's great nieces uh, who was in law school. We were in law school at the same time, Marlene Owens. And, you know, to listen to her talk, uh, repeat family stories about how, you know, Owens comes back because Owens went to Ohio State, but he couldn't live on campus. So Jesse couldn't even make a living off of his fame when he returned as the hero to help smash Hitler and all this old BS they run. You know, in movies they still make to that regard. But 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 what you see is that this isn't just inconvenience segregation. This is structural inequality. You got Jesse out here racing horses. But Jesse Owens in his 20s, in the 30s, comes back around. And in 1968, they send Jesse Owens into the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team, to tell the Negro athletes to calm down. And those young people confront Jesse Owens in Mexico City and say, hey, hey, man. What the hell is wrong with you? They sent you out here to run against Hitler. Do you remember that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, well, no, about 32 years ago, and Owens breaks down into tears. Now, how do I know that? How do we know that? We know that because Jesse Owens wrote several kind of memoirs, books over the arc of his life. And the last one he wrote, it's called Black Think. But he wrote a book called I Have Changed. Because he said, those young people opened my eyes. Now, you know, black power was something that was a difficult thing for me to navigate as it was for many of my generation. However, I understood where they were coming from. And I thought about myself as a young man. I loved it. And, and, you know, for me and for us, I think it's always very important. You know, you talk about, you know, you ask and you think about, we talk about what to do next. And, you know, we always think about recovering our memory. This is a constant theme in our conversations. And again, I love to evoke and encourage us all to explore the what Jacob Carruthers again called the deep well of African thought. In other words, we don't have to turn to the philosophical frames of other people. They they're very useful. Human all humanity has contributed to this uh, universal storehouse of human knowledge. However, that includes the Africans, including our people. So you know, I think about the ancient Egyptian term, uh, the hieroglyph term, which well, the term which translates, I guess, roughly in in in, in English as "my heart of different ages." Eve is the word for heart, heart and mind it means your mind and your heart, the same thing. But he said, you know, your experience of different ages, meaning that what you did at 22, at 52, you remember that your heart has changed, but your heart still contains that 22 year old, still contains that six year old, still contains that teenager, still contains that 30 something and that 40 something. My heart of different ages. So, you know, the, the, the old Africans thought about that. And they said, this is the value of sitting in intergenerational conversation, because when Jesse Owens comes into that room in 68 with these young people, which includes John Carlos, includes Tommy Smith, a, a George Foreman, 
who waves the American flag around. And then, of course, Muhammad Ali comes back in Zaire and pummels Foreman, taking the, the uh, championship from him. And part of the rhetoric of Ali at that time is, you know, this is the Negro that waved the American flag in uh, 1968 in Mexico City after he won his gold medal. I won my medal in 1960 in Rome eight years earlier. And when I got back to Louisville and thought about segregation, I threw my, my medal in the Louisville River. So, I mean, you know, again, when Jesse Owens comes in that situation, 32 years after he as a 20 something has been in that Olympic room representing the United States ostensibly to smash Hitler, although he comes back to the United States and is, and is defecated on by the country of his quote unquote national loyalty and birth, those young people confront him. And in that dialogue, Jesse Owens is pulled back his heart of different ages to that moment. And some of the things that Owens felt when he was in his 20s, some of the things he felt on the world stage in, in Berlin. And of course, we pause here and think about Rayford Johnson. We think about Ralph Metcalf. We think about all those black athletes who have been on the international stage for the United States and then found themselves confronting things when they get back that remind them that, yeah, they love you with that flag when you run it against another nation state because this is another. In fact, I used to tell my students all the time when Cuba would play the United States or the United States would play Jamaica or something in a, in a game in uh, in in the Olympics, I'll be like, you know what? They should take off USA and Cuba and put on for the United States jerseys, just put cotton, and for the Cuban jerseys, just put on sugar. <laughs> and anyway, because <laughs> see, you know, you 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 act like these letters make you full citizen and you got all the rights, but they they're gonna take as soon as you get off the air, when you get off the uh, plane coming back, they're gonna take them letters off and remember the color of your face. So why don't we just strip it down to the commodities they stole you from Africa to get? But at any rate. Owens, his heart of different ages is triggered. And so you see him writing through this connection, this dissonance, this opening of his heart of different ages. And so he writes, I have changed. Then he writes black thing. You know what I mean? He's like, well, I gotta. And, and so I'm saying all that to say that when we see one night in Miami, the irony is, I think, that a one night in Miami without us taking that brilliantly conceived and executed piece of art, without taking it as a point of departure and not the end of the story becomes exactly that. One night in Miami, February 25th, 1964. One night in Miami, which in fact, people say was based on a true story. Yeah, and at some point, they do end up in the same hotel room, right? When you read, you know, you look at Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, Ali and Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, they, they're in Malcolm's house uh, room at the uh, Hampton House Motel. You know, and so now do we know the word-by-word -word conversation they're having? No, that's the artist's license. However, as you say, these are real human beings in time and space who are articulating positions that we see them trace in the arc of their lives, and so ultimately, then that becomes our point of departure for then saying, OK, let's do some comparative analysis. You see a Kyrie Irving. He hasn't played for the Brooklyn Nets now in quite a few games, relatively speaking, early part of the NBA season. you got all the commentators talking about what is he doing? And then, you know, you know, you hear people saying, well, he's involved in social causes. We don't know it. You know, you look and say, I don't know what that young brother is going through. But I know that there was there were previous generations of athletes who got involved in social causes. And I don't know anything about Kyrie Irving. What I mean, and I certainly one thing I definitely will not do is trust 
white facing commercial news media, which is primarily interested on in when you're going to get back on the court, shut up and dribble kind of stuff. They can gloss it with social, you know, movement stuff. But what I what I encourage folk to do is that whatever craft you're in, look at those who preceded you in that craft. And for those of us who don't practice that craft, if these people have quote unquote platform, then perhaps look at previous generations of folk who had similar platforms. And so when you see an Aliyah, when you see a Sam Cooke, when you see a Jim Brown, when you see a Malcolm X, you know, we're not looking for them in this generation. However, just as individuals have hearts of different ages, so do groups of people. So do people who are grouped in terms of their social identities or their cultural identities. And I'm not talking about identity politics. I'm talking about people who have similar enough circumstances to benefit from asking questions. And so um, perhaps to assist with that, and I was thinking about it, you know, this morning we said, oh, let's talk about one night in Miami right quick. I didn't pull any of the Ali stuff. There's a lot of Ali stuff except this. This is my man, Ishmael Reed. He did a book called The Complete Muhammad Ali. I encourage people to get this book because, in fact, when he when it first came out, he came to Washington, D.C. And I got a chance to uh, interview him. He came to the bookstore, uh, the Barnes and Noble bookstore at on the campus of Howard University, formerly the Howard University bookstore. And the two of us sat for a couple of hours you know, and and we had a con public conversation and just going through because, you know, Ishmael Reed don't pull no punches. He's like you. And he controls his stuff. I mean, most of Ishmael Reed stuff at this point, he publishes outside the United States. And he talks about the, 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 the relationship. He talks about Ali as a symbol of attempting to build power and what happens when people buck a system that never intended for them to have power that's really at the heart of that one night in miami you've got malcolm x of course who is on the verge of being out forever really of the nation of islam it really is for all intents and purposes and of course to think through that malcolm isn't here you know his, his children are here you know and you know his wife betty shabazz is not here although betty and coretta in the wake of the assassinations of their husbands keeping their families together they form a bond if you see the the documentary gary 1972 which talks about of course the, the gary political convention the black political convention in gary indiana you see that open and you see coretta scott king and uh betty shabazz introduced together and they're sitting side by side talking they formed a bond it wasn't just about the assassination of their husbands they they were both very deeply involved in politics and, and, and in black struggle and organizational struggle but so 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 she, she, they're not here you know the, the children are here you know you see Allah, you see Yasha, you know you see malak malaka you see i mean so so but you have ali's family his brother Rahman, if you've seen any of the documentaries, you know, the United States versus Muhammad Ali or some of the other things, you hear Rahman, who was down there in Miami, talking about Malcolm, talking about the nation, talking about him joining the nation, talking about the inner politics of the nation. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of those people are still alive. So if you want to know the story, you know, you can't get it from looking at a Netflix film where the nation has evoked and Minister Farrakhan, who is evoked very near the beginning when he says, oh, Louis X, and again, not giving away anything else, but know that the complex, often contradictory, often collective struggle of our people, individuals and institutions, is something none of us can get from the point of entry of a film or a book or a, uh, a, 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 a poem or some music. No, it's those are points of entry 
to the thing we need to really link to, which is the living tradition. Again, evoking somebody we talked about this summer, Humpate Ba, the historian. It talks about the living tradition, the mouth to ear tradition. And it's all there for us. So there's Malcolm. Um, looking to continue to build black independent power. There's Sam Cooke, as we said, who wants to own his masters, but who ends up being taken out of the equation before he can consolidate any of the things that are coming from his gifts. And when you yank on Sam Cooke, everybody falls out. The whole Chicago music scene, the quartet scene. Uh, uh, Aretha Franklin talks about being in love with Sam Cooke and them being on tour uh, at the same time with the same tour and people knocking on doors looking for Aretha Franklin. Did she sneak down there looking for Sam Cooke? C.L. Franklin wants to know. In other words, I mean, but but saying how, you know, when they were, when they were kid teenagers now, Sam Cooke and them would come into the churches and Sam Cooke, of course, we think about him with the soul stirs, right? Cooke, because by the time we see in One Night in Miami, he's out of the soul stirs. But this, this is his, his, his singing, his public-facing singing notoriety comes not out of the secular world, but the church. Like Marvin Gaye later, it's going to be a tension there. Or like W.C. Handy and them before, there's going to be a tension there. Or for that matter, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who <laughs> that matter, we start thinking about how, how, how deep this goes. But you know, I'm sitting there, Aretha Franklin, and I'm sitting there, and then Sam cooking them and his quartet would come through the back door of the church, and we all sitting there waiting on the stage, and they would be in the back and come in like any of y'all, because I was a, I'm an old retired usher. I was on the junior usher board. You know how you come in the back of the church, right? So they would come in, the quartet singing, coming down the aisle, and the girls going crazy. This is in the church. So, of course, Sam Cooke takes all that energy and empties it into his secular career. So when you see one in my night in Miami, and you see this very powerful series of exchanges between Cook, who isn't to use the borrow language from David Ritz, who wrote a book on uh, Marvin Gaye called Divided Soul. I'm going to look at his Divided Soul. I look at it as my heart of different ages. Because as you said, that versus thing got to go. That's not our paradigm. It's all of it. Well, go ahead. What are you about to say? And, and what's even more powerful, we look at that. Malcolm and Sam Cooke both would not be there the next year. How about that? Sam Cooke died in December of 64. Wow. Yes. Yes. 30 something years. I mean, you you think about both of these people who are on a journey for freedom, doing it differently, but with the same goal. You know, Sam's like, you got to understand why should we do business differently than they do it? Let them work for us. Finally, you know, he's he's given that narrative. You may look at me as a sellout, but I'm actually buying into the notion of black power financially. Yes. And because of that ownership and because of that rejection of the mob and 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 he wouldn't actually capitulate. No. He, he's not here. He wasn't here in 64 <laughs> December. Right. That's right. And you know what's so interesting? Who, well, again, and again, y'all, these are breadcrumbs, right? And, and again, these are just, these are not rehearsed conversations. We have an organic conversations in here. Karen. Who would you say might be the closest in terms of that aspiration to own and to use their celebrity in the field of music to advance the notion of uh, of black power using their celebrity and their and their power and fame as a musician at the time of Sam Cooke's death? Who else beside him? Oh, was Otis Redding? In that? Okay. Oh, remember he mentions Otis because Otis gets killed in that plane crash, right? But but, but yeah. The, so you got you got you got Otis he, Redding. He owned he owned himself. Mm -hmm. Dead young. Uh, Ray Charles. There it is. Let's we can pause okay. right, right there. Ray Charles Robinson. There he is. Ray Charles is the one. Think. Imagine that. 
So it isn't, and, and, and Ray Charles isn't, at least it, maybe I missed it. Maybe he was, and I, I need to go back and rewatch. But if he was, it was in passing. Ray Charles and Sam Cooke have a similar aspiration. Ray Charles dies of old age. So Ray Charles lives it out. Ray Charles gave so much money to HBCUs. Ray Charles, in fact, at Morehouse right now, the auditorium named Ray Charles Auditorium. In fact, that's what you know. So I mean, Ray Charles parlays is is able to bring it off in many ways. You know, I mean, Jamie Foxx, the brilliant actor, and again, again, it shouldn't be. Let me ask you this though, because yes. um, you know, it, white white patriarchy is weird. Um, <laughs> is, is it possible? Because I always feel like if you're somewhat damaged, that they give you the runway. You know, so Ray Charles is blind. He drug addict. You know, he's you know he's not he's not Malcolm, on you know who could not be penetrated at that point in terms. You couldn't dangle a woman in front of him or alcohol or drugs. You know, uncompromised. Sam Cook to an extent too, even though they caught him out there in that hotel. It was. I'm just I'm asking. You know, there's some uncompromisable people, um, and and some folk who can be compromised or who have you know some you know flaws i guess that can be exploited tend to get a bigger runway i'm just i was thinking out loud that's very interesting because as you said that i mean now i'm filing back in time thinking about blind lemon jefferson i'm thinking about which of course a major figure in the early days of recorded sound I'm thinking like he's no threat he's no threat to 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 white male dominance no you perceived know? threat Right. It's your it's your daddy and them or, or my mom and them back in, in, in the South we may call it country dumb. You know, country dumb. See, you think I'm dumb and I'm gonna let you think I'm dumb. Wait, oh, you're paying me for the song that you record. No, <laughs> country dumb, right? In, in fact, some kind of ways that young brother, well, not so young now, ancestor from Gary, Indiana, Michael Jackson, who they all thought was crazy till they found out he owned the Beatles catalog. And I never, in fact, there's, oh man. Come on, come on, I was thinking that too, you go know, ahead. John Johnson, oh man, uh, there's, a, oh, I can't think of, it's not Michael Jackson, The Lost Takes. There've been so many Michael Jackson books, but there's a book, and I know I have it around, but anyway, where the book opens with Jackson in that negotiation room. And I wanna say he had John Johnson in there with him. I think it was John, I think it was Mr. Johnson. He asks, he asks Johnson whether this asking price is too high, but he writes it on a piece of paper and slides it over. Johnson is like, yeah, the price is too high. Sends it back. Jackson looks at the paper and says, okay. And those of you who read this book or who know this story, y'all can correct me in the chat because, again, I'll have to refresh my memory by going back and, and double-checking this again but because it's all in real time. But um, if memory serves me correctly, Jackson then goes on, of course, to purchase the Beatle, what become the Beatle catalog. And Johnson says, in retrospect, that in that moment, on that deal, Jackson's a better businessman than me. I was thinking small. This 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 cat was thinking long range. I mean, so so, so the idea of country don't know. I have no doubt that that that, that um that Ray Charles um that hit the way he moved through the world in terms of his the business world. You know, it didn't take long for them to understand he was a very shrewd business person. But yeah, in terms of pop culture. Absolutely. I think that probably played a role. And not to mention the fact that Robinson, I'm sorry, I keep calling him Robinson, Ray Charles Robinson, but Ray Charles, um, like so many others, Edward Kennedy Ellington, Duke Ellington and others, transcended category. 
Mm. He's making money with modern country and Western sounds. He understands the root of all that is the blues. I mean, the African has informed everything that came out of South. And I don't think this is, in fact, there's a brand new book and I'm about halfway through it, Will Freelander wrote called Straighten Up and Fly Right, which is the latest biography of Nat Cole out of Montgomery, Alabama. And it's very, I think there's, to me, there's something about these black women and men who are raised in the South, particularly in black institutions where they saw black people doing everything that kind of, that kind of creates an expectation when they start negotiating with white structures that almost makes them in some ways incorruptible, as you say, but the way they move through the world is also informed by this capacity to hide their their inner intent from the public facing intent because they understand how to how to deal with white people. I mean, it's it's really that's why I say I mean, digging into our traditions will allow us to, you know, get into a, I think a very different posture as we move forward. And and that doesn't that doesn't mean one is better than the other because it certainly is a price you pay when you eat your heart. Uh, Egyptians would say, and you just, in fact, the Egyptians have a well. That's a saying. It's one of one of the say by one of the wisdom literatures. It might even be in Tarotep, but I, I'd have to check. You know, they always say, "Never eat your heart." In other words, so I, you know, when you think I, I see these young people, particularly in Black Lives Matter, or I see the young people in the '60s and '70s, Stoney Carmichael and them, Rap Brown, you know, don't eat your heart. It's like you're not going to eat your heart. You're going to say the thing because you're not going to let that thing eat you up on the inside. Mm. And so whether it be a Jesse Owens late in life saying them young people made me confront this thing that I've had on me since the 30s, whether it be Jack Robinson in his uh, posthumously published memoir, I Never Had It Made, where he said I should have never let them use me against Paul Robeson. I mean, what, you, you see people near the end unburden themselves. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I think. I'm sure they use Ray Charles. Yeah. So as we, you know, enter this uh, new era of America, and I and I have really sat and thought about where we are in -hmm. history, right? Um, I feel like we're definitely at the end of an era. It is important and incumbent upon everybody with melanin who is watching this right now to walk into your power. This is that time. This is that time to claim your spot. Claim it. And they've lost. They look like losers as we head into this, uh, this, this is the way losers behave, the way we watch the insurrection, the way we watch these people in Congress behave. That's how losers behave. Yeah. So that means we won. Well, now, I think, it's, yeah, it, but the win is not permanent unless we make it so by stepping into it. So my question to you, doc, Hmm. And, uh, you know, I thank you for having this conversation because, you know, we're, we're going to have an inauguration, you know, a new president, you know, maybe there'll be more oh, violence. We, we should pause. Let me footnote this before you okay. get, you know, who's in charge of African-American, uh, the African-American participation and outreach and coordination for the inauguration. Ajua. <laughs> yeah, shout out Ajua. Ajua yes. I, was more, I said, oh, Ajua in charge of the what? You said, yeah, yeah, that's as close as I'm going to get into it for now. But I said, okay, so anyway, but go ahead, go ahead. So yeah, God bless her because God knows. I was in the grocery store yesterday, Karen, and I promise you, it was like there was no plague. In fact, I said, I just sat in the car for a minute. So I ain't going in here. When I got out, the line was long. I said, y'all still, yeah, oh yeah, we're not letting the so-and-so in. And I said, why is this? Long? And then it dawned on me, people in the DMV, are preparing not to go back outside for a week or two. <laughs> this they, they got they got down the street on lock. You understand? So yeah, yeah, we we are we are we are on the cusp 
by the time we get together next week, God only knows what we'll be talking about. So, yeah. So, anyway, go ahead, please. Yes, we're in the middle of that transition. The roof is on fire. I'm going to get back to that question. <laughs> what do we do? What 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 is the plan? And, you know, how do you see it in relationship to, you know, I'm um, hearing a lot of healing and conciliation in uh, we should we should, you know, come together as a nation and we should put aside all of it. But there's still 74 plus million Americans putting up air quotes around that barely human uh, who see the world quite differently. And the world has changed and it's not going back. And we need to put our foot on the gas to make sure as they attempt to put their foot on our necks. Well, the world never goes back. So the what world. do what what do what are your thoughts and you know and how does it relate to all of these other flashpoints? You know the, these conversations around power and internal struggles and you know overcoming this versus nature and you know uh, the legend or the the legacy that Ma- Malcolm and Martin left for us. Oh, that's nice. That's that's a nice way to. And again, as we think about this, folks. You know, like I say, we're having a conversation. We're both teachers and we know and this is something that I've tried to learn and get better at realizing that we never stop learning, never stop working from elders and master teachers. I've observed over the years and known and asked all kind of questions. I'm sure they get tired of me asking questions and then just sit and watch them, you know, in a, in a classroom of any type, particularly when you're talking about a subject like this, the question of memory and action to when we start talking about our people the power of connecting what seem at first to be unconnected things is really at the center of any teaching and learning practice because it allows us all to gain the momentum going forward so when we see senator lank lankford out of oklahoma apologizing to the black folk in Tulsa and in Oklahoma uh, for, you know, not re- not recognizing how hurtful his uh, his behavior, his comments uh, could be perceived to be. I love the way he said that. Shout out, Senator. You didn't apologize for what you said. You apologize for how it would be perceived. And I, I respect you for that because you're a white nationalist and you should say it with your whole chest. I know your chest is small, but you should puff up and say a little little bit louder with your chest. But at any rate, there are two black uh, men in the Oklahoma Senate. Roland Martin interviewed one of them the other night. I was watching the interview and the brother was like, it's not my place to accept this man's apology. And he talked to my community. Roland's like, what do you think? He said, no, it's not my place to have a way to think. But then as he talked, it was very clear you know, that's some BS. We know it's some BS. But I'm saying that to say that Lankford, Josh Harley, Mitch McConnell, um, Nikki Haley, Mitt Romney, forget what they are saying right now. Understand that what they are going to rely on going forward is a selective narration of this country's institutional memory. They're going to try to pretend as if the last four years didn't exist. And in the case of Nikki Haley, who will no doubt run for president, she's going to try to pretend like the last four years didn't exist. And at the exact same time, pretend that it did exist because she wants all those white racists to uh, embrace her as a white racist, even though she's Indian. 
And at the same time, she wants the white people who are uncomfortable with the white racism to embrace her as a, as Republicans. So, you know, wouldn't that be something to see Nikki Haley versus Kamala Harris, two Indian Americans? But anyway, people get caught up on that like that's meaning something. No, 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 no. Y'all got to look at the structural history. So, again, making the connections gives us the momentum to move forward in our collective liberation struggle, which isn't an American struggle. It's a global struggle. It's a human struggle. And that's something Dr. King talked about, which we're going to get to in a second, because we're really already evoking it. Again, in the classroom, anticipating where we're going to end and then back mapping that through the conversation that's unfolding organically allows everybody to see, oh, oh, oh. And then the aha moments, most of which come after we've done the live conversation, really is the point of departure for us doing that hard work of recovery and memory and this kind of thing. But while this structure relies on selectively narrating the past, it never wants to include in that selective narration anything that those of us who also lived through these periods of American history, and that's all of us one way or the other, it never wants to include anything in that narrative that's going to disturb their ultimate objectives in a way that could transform the narrative. So yes, it feels like we're at, as we've talked about, an inflection point. As you said, something broke. And it's absolutely true. But this isn't the first time we were at an inflection point or something broke. When you see One Night in Miami, that's an inflection point. 1960, the so-called year of Africa, so many of these countries gained their independence. The first countries, 1956, the Sudan, which is in Africa, and then people say, well, you know, the first African country to gain their independence was Ghana in 1957, Sudan, not in Africa. Well, those are Arabs. They're in Africa and there are many continental Africans who are not Arabs who are in the Sudan. So don't no, don't do that. I mean, so but but again, coming out of colonialism, but 1957, in fact, let's start dealing with Dr. King a little bit. Come on, son. What you got around here? I know I pulled uh, Dr. King. Yes. Yes. King gets an invitation. The Kings, Coretta and Martin. And, you know, Coretta with Martin. Oh, by the way, they want to give that brother Goodman. You can't make this stuff up. Man named Goodman, right? <laughs> uh, as my friend uh, Erica Savage said the other night on, uh, on Ron Martin's show, you know, Goodman, the brother who was coming up the steps and drew those white nationalists to him. In part, I imagine capitalizing on the fact that they racist. So you see him get to the top of the stairs, look down the hall at where the entry doors to the United States Senate chamber is, which is where they all in there barricaded, worried like hell. And in a split second, pulls those white nationalists, pulled that hillbilly horde toward him and pulled them away from their objective. Who knows who would have got murked if they had gone down the other way, but they want to give him, they say the congressional gold medal. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cute. Um, I think the first congressional gold medal they gave to a black person was the great Afro Boricua, Boricua, uh, the great Puerto Rican uh, Roberto Clemente in 1973, because, you know, he, he died in, in trying to get disaster aid uh, to Central America and uh, in the plane that he rented. But they gave Martin and Coretta King the congressional gold medal a few years ago. I think it was either 2004 or 2006, uh, posthumously, of course. But. The, the medal, when they give you a medal, they put your face on it. So you see the two of them on the medal. I've seen it somewhere. Maybe it's the Library of Congress. It may have been on loan when I, when I saw it. But anyway, I raised that to say 1957 
the kings are invited to Ghana for the independence celebration. Kwame Nkrumah, in fact, puts an open call and tells black people, you know, come on home. We need your skills. In fact, there's a good article by David Levering Lewis, who we've mentioned before, the scholar David Levering Lewis, um, whose father, by the way, was the principal at Dunbar High School of Little Rock, the same Dunbar we talked about a few years ago, a uh, few, few, few months ago, the same Dunbar that sent those students to uh, some couple of disputed students who became part of the Little Rock Nine. But at any rate, David Levering Lewis wrote an article in the American Scholar some time ago called Ghana, 1960, because he went there. My Angelou was there, of course. Alice Wyndham, who's still alive. St. Louis, brilliant sister. If y'all want to know about the Black presence in Central America, talk to Alice Wyndham, who was friends with Malcolm X. They're all there in West Africa. And and some of them, uh, uh, Nell Urban Painter, Dr. Painter, um, that some of them formed the Welcome Committee when Malcolm X tours West Africa. There's a famous picture of Malcolm with Shirley Graham Du Bois, the widow of W.B. Du Bois, who moves, they moved to Ghana. And of course, after you know, Malcolm comes to West Africa. That's part. So when we think about Malcolm, we often think about him in the American sense, but and we gesture toward him going other places. But really, by the time he makes it into uh the last phase of his life, he's all over the world. I mean, you know, he, he he's in Nigeria. He meets with the uh, West African Student Union students, and then one of them, they give him a name, Omowale, the son who has returned home, the child rather, who has returned home in Yoruba. But at any rate, in fact, I'm thinking now, see the picture, the famous color picture of Malcolm in his African clothes as a little slim volume written by Jan Carew, uh, the former husband of Sylvia Winnett, a philosopher who, a uh, very important uh, brother who ended up at the University of Louisville called Ghosts in Our Blood. He talks about how Malcolm is with them in England and, they're, and, and the students, the young students there are talking to Malcolm about identity and blackness and politics. But I'm saying all that, let me put this in context of Martin Luther King. Martin King, Coretta King, go to Ghana for the inauguration in March 1957. Now, what do we do? How do we move forward? By the way, Eisenhower didn't go, but they sent Richard Nixon to represent the United States. And the U.S. Embassy, you know, it's controlled by white people. Their interest in Africa is the same as their interest in India or Pakistan, their interest in Central America, Latin America. They look in to see if this government is going to let them keep stealing the cocoa, stealing the the, 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 the ebony wood, stealing the oil eventually, stealing. And, oh, and if this is not a government that's going to help us steal, then we need to undermine it. And we can tell the people at home anything. We're fighting communism, whatever, because these people don't read. They don't study. Now, in Krumah, they're trying to figure out whether he's friend or foe. Right? Is he friend or foe? Well, he went to school in the United States, so he'd be a friend. Yeah, but he's a Pan-Africanist. Okay, that doesn't bode too well. And the French is in the, because remember now, these, these are teams. Team Europe never turns on itself when it's Team Europe versus the world. Uh, another word for Team Europe is uh, the international community. When you hear them talk about the international community, that means Team Europe and whoever else they need to pull off their scheme. So, you know, Russia's, Russia's kind of Afro-Asian. Some of them are not white. Many of them, in fact, millions of them are not white, but millions of them are. So this kind of neither fish nor fowl. China, they just bogart their way up because they're the oldest, the baddest, and eventually they're going to be running the thing anyway in their mind. So, you know, but when they say international community, they meant for years, Team Europe. So Team Europe is trying to figure it out. The French are talking to the Americans. The Belgians are talking to the Americans. The English are talking to the Americans. I don't know about Nkrumah. And the French is like, yeah, that dude's second to Ray, man. He's a bit of an asshole up there in Guinea. Y'all got to watch. And so here's Martin and Coretta King, Ralph Bunch, a bunch of other people dropping down in the middle of this inauguration in 1957. 
And Richard Nixon and them is like, what the hell are you doing? Here's a famous picture of Nixon talking to uh, King with their white tuxedos on at one of the receptions there in Ghana. I said, yeah, well, you know, my man's invited me. Your man's? Yeah, my man's Kwame and Krumah. You know, we all cousins. Now, King didn't say that, but here's what he did say. Two good books that I think everybody should get. In fact, this is a great book. If you want to get a book on King, get the things King wrote. So the first book, of course, that he did coming out of the Montgomery boycott, this is Stride Toward Freedom, the Montgomery story. This is the first book he dedicates to Coretta, my beloved wife and co-worker. This is from 1958. This, this is one from 58. Get um, Strength to Love, Book of Sermons, right? There he is again, Mike King, Martin Luther King. Get Why We Can't Wait. If you're going to, you know, read Martin Luther King. And then the last book that was published, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. If you got to get one that King wrote, I'd say get this one. But the one I'm going to show you next is one I encourage folk to get to think about Martin Luther King internationally. In fact, it's the best single book that pulls together those things yet produced. It's called In a Single Garment of Destiny, A Global Vision of Justice. It's a part of the King Legacy series. Um, very interesting. Lewis Baldwin, brother who was at Vanderbilt University, he's done a lot of work on Martin Luther King, is edited this along uh, with Charlene Hunter Galt. Of course, we know the famous Charlene Hunter Galt, the great journalist uh, who integrated uh, along with Hamilton Hunter, the University of Georgia. Um, um, if you've seen the recent documentary, uh, um, Vernon Jordan's doc documentary, Vernon Jordan, who was a young lawyer at the time, apprenticing under. Uh, what's the brother's name? Donald Hollowell, who was the great lawyer out of Georgia, uh, who was the kind of counterpart in some ways of people like Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson in Virginia and them. So anyway, uh, she wrote the, the foreword of this. But what this is, and I'm going to show this to y'all. Y'all can pause the, the video later. Here's the table of contents. These are many of the speeches and writings that Dr. King did on the question of how black people and we fit into the international conflicts. He did a lot of writing and talking and preaching and analysis around anti-apartheid. Because remember, One Night in Miami, 1964. By then, Martin Luther King has been on the national scene for almost a decade. And this is right after, by the space of a little bit over a year, the Rivonia trials in uh, South Africa that put Nelson Mandela in jail for all those years, almost three decades between Robben Island and Palsmore Prison and sent Winnie Mandela into a, a tortured hell that we're still not in deep enough touch with to understand what happened to Winnie Mandela and how she fought back and what it did to her and what it didn't do to her. I mean, so, but but this is all happening and Dr. King is commenting on it. He's got sermons in here and speeches on here, uh, in here. I mean, he's talking, for example, uh, Appeal for Action Against Apartheid, July, 1962. South African Independence, he gives a talk in London, London, December 1964. Let my people go. South African benefit speech by Martin Luther King, Hunter College, 1965, December 1965. But the one I want to focus on, again, thinking about Martin Luther King in the context of international politics, Black struggle, and the Pan-African connection, Dr. King goes to the inauguration. Both Kings, Coretta and, and Martin. And he comes back and he gives a talk entitled Invitation to Ghana, 19, I'm sorry, no, 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 no. He gives that, he, 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 he let, me, let me go to the page. It's page 57 so I can read it so y'all can see it. He's in Montgomery 
he tells the congregation, yo, we have been invited to go to Ghana. So the congregation, Dexter Avenue. So we know about the Montgomery bus boycott and Rosa Parks and some, some of us, you know, we, we talked about E.D. Nixon, Edgar Daniel Nixon and the, the, the promo porter who's part of the Montgomery Improvement Association and been a long school, old school struggler. Ms. Parks, the youth secretary of the Montgomery branch, the NAACP. So we've got all that going on, right? But that's the domestic narrative that we want, that people, the America likes, the, that, that fits nice into the narrative, the long suffering narrative. But see, this gets messy when you see, wait, the, Af the African invited the African-Americans to the inauguration because he feels a tie to them and they accept it. And then they went to that same church that we basically trapped on a bus for the last 60 years uh, or, or not on a bus in terms of the bus boycott and told uh, uh, that they, they need the money and, and the church helped raise the money to send them to Ghana. Yeah. And then when he comes back, he gives a sermon. The Birth of a New Nation, sermon by Martin Luther King, Dexter Avenue, Montgomery, Alabama, April 7, 1957, where he talks about the fact. In fact, this is what he says. He says, I want to preach this morning from the subject, the birth of a new nation. And I would like to use as a basis for our thinking together, a story that has long since been stenciled on the mental sheets of succeeding generations. It is the story of the Exodus, the story of the flight of the Hebrew people from the bondage of Egypt through the wilderness and finally to the promised land. It's a beautiful story. And then he goes on to talk about he uses that story of Exodus as a metaphor for the exodus of the non-white world from the dying framework of colonialism. Something has cracked. Something has changed. Something is changing. The white world is terrified. Why? Because there are more. And then he starts doing the numbers. He starts talking about how many more millions of people who are not white there are in the world than white people. And how it's over now. But anyway, now, let me pause here and say that I have never and will never accept the Exodus narrative and the whole night notion of the Exodus of the Egyptians as a historical principle. I just can't do it. I'm a person of African descent. I know too much about the history of Egypt and I've known too many master scholars who talk, who've taught about classical African history. And I took too many classes and did too many apprenticeships with those who helped teach the Egyptian language, including my brother, Mario Beatty, to ever embrace that. I've seen too many documents, you know, so, you know, those of you who are going to look for the Hebrews in Egypt, you're not going to find them in any history. You're just not going to find them. So I just want to say that now. So now this, this is going to be a spiritual metaphor. Now that, okay, we do what we want to do. Okay, that's fine. And if you wanted to embrace it as a spiritual uh, thing, also understand that if you want to embrace the Hebrew Exodus as a spiritual exercise and as a metaphor? That's fine. Well, that's black, still black on black crime because ain't no white people in the Nile Valley at the time. But it certainly didn't happen historically. So at any rate, thank God we ain't never got to hear Ben Carson again talk about the pyramids being storage bins for grain. I'm like, dude, you should have stayed operating on brains because clearly you had a gift and it certainly or, didn't. Or not. Or maybe that was the show that he shouldn't be operating on brains. Well, you know, I mean, th those who are fans of the, uh, the the ABC series, The Good Doctor, might attribute that to some special gift that he got that just allowed him to focus on oh, that. Okay, okay. You know I'm saying, but, but what, it, you know what I'm saying? It didn't translate to, uh, certainly, I mean, and then again, I'm not, I mean, well, I ain't going to speculate as to whether or not that's just your spiritual rootedness because, hey, we don't debate religion. People do what they want to do. But just keep that, as John Clark used to always say, don't read the Bible like a history book. We ain't had no problem. But the minute you come in here, start quoting as a history book, I have a responsibility to our ancestors to stop that. So Dr. King, using Exodus as a metaphor, goes into how all these non-white countries 
are coming out, and that includes Ghana. And when he, he goes through the history of Ghana, he goes through the history of Black people. He talks about the connection. He said, we came from Africa. We are connected to them. Then he goes through the history of Kwame Nkrumah, all this. I'm going to switch books right quick. That's in this book. Now, this is the, the talk he gives when he comes back. But watch this. Here's another book that's very good. This is a little cheap book. You can get this, you know, for your elementary, middle school students and put it on the shelf next to that other one. I have a dream, writings and speeches that change the world. Now, this is a good book. James Washington, who edited this book. These are excerpts. These are part, excerpts from a larger book that Washington did. Uh, Washington did. A, he's a professor at Union Theological Seminary. Washington did a big old thick book that includes excerpts from all of Dr. King's books. Many of his speeches and writings is a very use to, useful book. It's called a Testament of Hope. I couldn't find my copy. I got a couple of copies and couldn't find one this morning. But but just you look that up, James Washington. But this is called from that. This is a little mini version. This is nice. Nice. This is a wonderful gift for a twelve-year-old, you know, or or fourteen-year-old. Certain of any age, we put this in the hands of a twelve-year-old girl or boy and say, "Hey, take this, put in your back pocket, and look." In fact, you talk about I have a dream. The first time Dr. King spoke on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial was not I have a dream. The first time he spoke was a prayer pilgrimage, May 17th, the month after he gave that sermon, after coming back from Mar March, they were in Independence. Uh, he, he was there, he and Coretta. April, he comes back and preaches that sermon we just saw at Dexter Avenue. The following month, May, he comes to Washington. Why? They have a prayer pilgrimage a little mini march to the Lincoln Memorial. Mordecai Johnson is there, Benjamin Mays is there. It's very interesting. And Dr. King gives a speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It's not I have a dream. Facing the challenge of a new age, something has cracked. And you know that most of this speech is concept for concept, the sermon he gave the previous month about Ghana. King stands on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and he doesn't say, we come to this great seat of democracy with a check that has been in return insufficient funds. He doesn't say, I have a dream. <laughs> no. He says, those of us who live in the 20th century are privileged to live in one of the most momentous periods in human history. It is an exciting age filled with hope. It is an age in which a new social order is being born. We stand today between two worlds, the dying old and the emerging new. Something has cracked. Something has cracked. The world's not going back to the way it is. He says, now I am aware of the fact that those that there are those who would contend that we live in the most ghastly period in human history. They would argue that the rhythmic beat of the deep rumblings of discontent from Asia, the uprisings in Africa, the nationalistic longings of Egypt, the roaring cannons from Hungary, and the racial tensions of America are all indicative of the deep and tragic midnight which encompasses our civilization. Oh, this ain't too, wait, are you on CNN in, in January 2021? No, this is May 19th, 
57. Wow, this is not have a dream. No, but it was the same steps. Oh, wait a minute. Our memory. Let us recover our memory so we can have our momentum going forward. Leave him on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, but start with the first public speech he ever gave there and watch how that puts that 63 speech in context. He goes on to say they would argue that we are retrogressing instead of progressing. Shout out to all them people who try to make a false equivalency between Black Lives Matter and the hillbilly horde. Yeah, we know what you're doing. And the more we remember, the more we can predict what you're going to do next. We know you're going to go try to hide Nikki. We know you're going to try to hide James. We know you're going to try to hide Mitch. We know you're going to try to hide uh, 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 what's my man in Utah. We know you're going to try to hide uh, uh, Romney. We know you're going to go try to hide. We know you're going to try to pretend I wasn't with him. You know, okay. But guess what? Those of you who read the Bible, now you know now, y'all devout Christians and Muslims too, who have this in the Quran as well. Didn't Peter deny Christ three times for the cock crow? You ain't fooling nobody. I don't know that dude. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Use whatever metaphor you want. In fact, Jeremiah Wright will be preaching Monday at how uh, tomorrow, uh, Sunday rather. He always preaches at Howard the uh, day before the um the uh, Martin Luther King holiday. And of course, it'll be virtual this year and he hasn't missed a beat. And I, you know, I, I love Jeremiah, right? In fact, and so I, I've been fortunate to be present. I was there, the sermon he gave the Sunday before Barack Obama was sworn in. You know, Barack Obama who did his best with the crossover dribble to deny Jeremiah, right? And then still doing it, bruh, it's over. You know, put the straw in your mouth. But at any rate, um, but Jeremiah Wright would use this metaphor. Oh yeah, Jeremiah Wright would yeah, Reverend Wright would do justice to this metaphor. And believe me, he's probably he probably has this memorized. So he goes on. This is this is King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, right? 1957, not 1963. King says we are all familiar with the, that the, with the old order that is passing away. We have lived with it for many years. We have seen it in the international aspect in the form of colonialism and imperialism. This is Martin Luther King. Then he goes on to talk about all the places in the world where Europe has wrecked havoc. Then what does he do? He brings it home. We have also seen the old order in our own nation in the form of segregation and discrimination. We know something of the long history of this old order in America. It had its beginning in the year 1619. Wait, is this the New York Times from the summer of 2019? No, this is Martin Luther King, 1957. And in a minute, we're going to go all the way back. You're like, wow. Night, he says, it had its beginning in the year 1916 with the first Negro slaves landed on the shores of this nation. Now, of course, he means those that fell under the sway of the British because the Spanish had tried to do that to us almost a century earlier. And we murked them and ran with the Native Americans and they ain't come back. But anyway, they were brought here from the soils of Africa. And unlike the Pilgrim Fathers who landed at Plymouth a year later, they were brought here against their wills. Throughout slavery, the Negro was treated in a very inhuman fashion. He was a thing to be used. Then he goes through Dred Scott. Then he comes to Plessy versus Ferguson. Then he comes to the idea of what was the impact that had on black people. He says, living under these conditions, the Lincoln Memorial, 1957, 1963, King says many Negroes came to the point of losing faith in themselves. They came to feel that perhaps they were less than human. The great tragedy of physical slavery was that it led to mental slavery. This is King. Now, in a minute, of course, people, and you know, I, I'm guilty of this as well. We say, read his last book. Because you see him process, yeah, but you ain't got to start with the last book to see King has been thinking about this human struggle of Africans in the United States linked to international struggles for decades before. Now, 1957 is a decade and a year before he makes transition 
But I'm going to pause there and just tell people to go ahead and read that. And let's just take it all the way back, shall we? This is the first volume of, I think by now we're up to volume seven, Clay Carson and those cats out of Stanford, the Martin Luther King papers. And uh, most of mine are in storage. But fortunately, this is one that I kind of keep around. This is volume one of the papers of Martin Luther King Jr., these thick volumes of the papers of Martin Luther King. He's got his little high school transcripts and stuff. You know, he skipped two grades, right? Ninth grade, 12th grade. Uh, Benjamin Mays, the man who molded him at Morehouse with the man they call Negro America School uh, Master. You know, Mays dropped the admission age during wartime at Morehouse to 16 years old. He's trying to keep them boys out of being drafted. And King was one of them cats that got in, not even on his grades, really, because he didn't have very good grades. He took a test to get into Morehouse. But, um, but at any rate, Dr. King, when is Dr. King? Okay, look at young King. Contest winner. When did he win this contest? This boy right here. And I say boy because Martin Luther King was a junior at Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School on April 13, 1944. In his junior year at Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School, Martin Luther King Jr. won an oratorical contest sponsored by the Black Elks. So my heart of different ages. Young people watching this, Mike King, Michael King at the day of his birth. His daddy went down and got both their names changed because it was Michael Luther King Sr., Martin Luther King, Mike Luther, Michael Luther King Jr. He got his, got his name changed. Um, Martin Luther King. Oh, correction, was, correction. There was no Luther. It was there was Michael. no Luther. There was That's no right. Luther. That's right. I always make that mistake. That's right. There was no Luther, just Michael. That's right. So you see then, right. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, the great theologian, Martin Luther, right? Name for them. They changes the names. That's exactly right. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Hunter. That's exactly right. Martin King by 1944, April 1944, Dr. King is all of 15 years old. Now, if you're 15 years old watching this, or you coming up on 15, listen to this speech that Dr. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. King, that young Martin Luther King gave, that won the oratorical, oratorical contest, sponsored by the Elks. That's the Black Elks, Black institutions. Every institution that shaped Martin Luther King till he left for Crozier which was right outside in the Philly suburbs. I pass it every time on the train when I was coming back from Howard. I, mean, I lived in Philly 17 years. In fact, one a couple of times I went down there, just let me go ride around in Crozier to say I was here with Martin Luther King. But every institution that shaped him until he got there was a black one. Booker T. Washington High School, black. Atlanta, all his elementary and junior high school, black. Morehouse, black. Isn't it interesting that the people who killed Jim Crow were produced by black institutions? Charlie Houston, before he went off to Amherst, the man that killed Jim Crow, trained Thurgood Marshall, came out of the M Street School, now Paul Lawrence Dunbar of D.C. But at any rate, he's 15 years old. Watch this. This is the first line of Dr. I'm sorry, Martin Luther King, 15 year old speech that he won the contest with. Young Martin stood up and said, Negroes were first brought to America in 1620. Y'all by date, but he's 15 years old. We come a little slack. When England legalized slavery, both in England and the colonies in America. Now we're going to cut him a little slack there too, because, you know, anyway, in terms of England, but not the colonies. The institution grew and thrived for about 150 years upon the backs of these black men. Mm, there's the gendered language, but that's okay. This is 2020. We're looking back in retrospect, and he's 15 years old. The, the empire of King Cotton was built, and the Southland maintained a status of life and hospitality distinctly its own and not anywhere else. On January 1st, 1863, the proclamation emancipating the slaves, which had been decreed by President Lincoln in September, took effect. 
millions of Negroes face the rising sun of a new day begun. Have I heard that phrase? Martin. Ken, is that familiar? <laughs> Come on. I love history. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? Let's do it again. Look at this young cat. He's 15 years old. That's the black newspaper, the Atlanta Daily World contest winner. <laughs> you 15-year-olds, you see we got to shoot for? This is why you study history. You can leave Martin Luther King frozen on them steps for the rest of your life. You want to look at these silly narratives that want to shape your memory to somebody else's purpose. Or you can come have a conversation with yourself. The stuff is here. And then you can have a different kind of vision of the future and a different aspiration. Martin says, did they have habits or thrift of thrift or principles of honesty and integrity? He says, only a few. Oh, Martin, your education got some gaps in it. For their teaching and duties have been but two activities. Love of master, right or wrong, good or bad, and loyalty to work. What was to be the place of such men in the reconstruction of the South? Pause. What do we do in 2021? What do we do in 1957? What do we do in 1944? King, 15-year-old King, just gestures back to 1865 and says, oh, something has cracked. What do we do? <laughs> he said, we ain't working for them no more. <laughs> Only thing I was taught was love of master and loyalty to work. He said, what was to be the place of these men? Let me pause here and just put this in very quickly. Because what you're not going to see on CNN, what you're not going to see on white face in public media, and unfortunately, too few of our places, but what we need to always remember, when Martin King says, I am the son of a minister. I am the grandson of a minister. I am the great-grandson of a minister. Every one of those ministers that came out of Martin Luther King's line. And he made that point several times in his life in terms of public comments to distinguish himself from being a politician. So all the t-shirts with Martin Luther King and then Barack Obama, mm -mm. Mm -mm. it's nice to have black people doing stuff and you can hold them up as role models, but don't confuse someone who is a person working for social justice with a politician. It's nice when politicians do some things that are important, but these are two different roles. And Dr. King was never sutured to them. In fact, if Dr. King was here, people say, what would Dr. King be doing? You asked what he did. Also in this book, and in fact, I'll pull something that folks may not, here are a couple I just mentioned. My man, Vincent Harding, I loved Vincent Harding. I got a chance to go out into Denver and spend some time with him and his wife before they made transition. This was many years ago. Myself, Aisha Imani, Erica Woods, Erica Asakoye now. This is Mark. He helped him write the Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam speech. This is this is the book Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero. Get Mark, get Vin, it's my man, Vincent Harding. People out of Jamaica, New Yorker. There he is, right there. The great Vincent Harding also wrote another little book that many people don't really maybe get their hand. But he look at this The Movement Makes Us Human, an interview with Vincent Harding on Mennonites, Vietnam, and MLK. It's a little, little thin book, little thin book, but. Dr. King, if he were here today, he'd be like, okay, this is great. Glad to see Biden and Harris. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. What's your foreign policy looking like? We got a black man in charge of the Pentagon. Yeah, that's cool. You're going to keep dropping bombs? Because when Martin Luther King was dead, black people was turning on him. White people had turned on him. Black people turned on him because he came out against Vietnam. Yeah, what you going to help him write the speech? Vincent Harding. Why oppose the war in Vietnam? A year to the day of his assassination, April 4th, 1967, Riverside Church. Who comes to here when he does it in Atlanta and starts talking about, I'm going to study war no more? Young Kwame Ture, 
intergenerational. A year year plus into the Black Power move in 1966 that they're making, SNCC and the people affiliated with them. But he still loved Dr. King. In fact, I love something that Kwame Ture said as an elder before he made transition. He said, you know what? The thing about Dr. King, I ain't a group of nonviolence, but he believed it and he lived his life that way. So those of you will say that nonviolence is ridiculous. Dr. King is crazy. I ask you a question. What are you doing? If you say nothing, I say be quiet. Because this man, he believed in it. I love Dr. King. And you got to admire that kind of courage. You know, so understand we can disagree politically, ideologically, but we all want the same thing. Liberation for our people. Dr. King. So Dr. King, if he were here today, don't ask what he would do. Know what he would do. He would be coming for the Pentagon budget. And if the black, they send the black man out, he said, I love you, brother. We can pray together and we need this. But stop. You were in Africom, right? Get that base out of our Africa. And you Africans that are with him? No, no. He would be. Mm-mm. Let me ask you a question. Um, the man that sits, uh, that preaches from that pulpit that King preached from is now in the Senate. Yeah. Reverend Raphael Warnock. Yeah. You just said, you know, there's two different animals, a politician and a social justice leader, a minister. That's right. A justice leader and a politician. And let me just, because um, there are a lot of questions about uh, Martin Luther King's name change. I dealt with it on my show yesterday. I led my show with it. Um, born Ma- Michael King Jr., uh name changed at age five because his daddy went to germany right and fell yeah. in love with martin luther yes while you talk i'm just gonna put up the uh this is this this is a nice little family tree from Dr. for dr king so i just want to put that there people can pause it and look a little later go ahead i'm sorry karen please no, 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 no. um so so when his father came back after this reformation this protestant you know <laughs> love of martin luther which is strange but nonetheless uh, changed his name. Therefore, his firstborn son also had to change his name. I don't know what that would feel like at age five when you've been called Michael and Mike, Mike, Mikey, Mike, little Mike, your whole life. You know, five years old, you're pretty conscious and he was smart. Yeah. Name was not legally changed on his birth certificate until he was 28. Wow. So. Which means he's, by then, he's he's deep into public notoriety. Right. Everyone knows him as Martin Luther King Jr. But it's not on his birth you, uh, Did you talk about, I'm sure you did. His family and people, they, they never stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know what that means or how that shapes you, but uh, that's that's a story. Oh, that's interesting. I think it probably had a profound impact. Well, I don't have to say, I think. Lewis Baldwin would write about that. Uh, James Cone. I mean, I'm sure a lot of folks have read James Cone's uh, book, Martin and Malcolm in America. Uh, King was more well studied in the European Christian tradition he was more well well studied than all but a handful of people in the country because remember in addition to coming up in a household where there were several generations of uh college trained folk including his father who went to morehouse um he comes under the tutelage of benjamin elijah mage who was a first-rate scholar at uh you know as president morehouse and also um you see on the scene, and I'll, and I'll resist the urge to go snatch those volumes over there. I won't, I won't, I won't. Howard Thurman, Howard Washington Thurman, who uh, there are one, two, three, four, five volumes of the Thurman papers. That they finally finished the last uh, volume. Uh, uh, Walter Earl Fluker, uh, whose son runs the archive at, at the Clark Atlanta University Libraries now. Good brother, both of them. So, but but these are two who have traveled and had interaction with, particularly. When you see Thurman, he and his wife, Sadie Daniel Thurman, uh, K, 
K. What am I saying? Sadie is Benjamin Elijah Mays' wife. Uh, K. Bailey Thurman. They have contact with Gandhi. The king never meets Gandhi. King meets Gandhi through Mays and Thurman and them, who traveled to India. Uh, Mordecai Johnson, who was a minister, which caused tensions because he was a minister to President Howard University, and some of the academics is like, dude, you're a preacher. I'm up here being the man. But but so King has that background before he leaves for, for Crozier. And one of the beautiful things about the King papers is you you also uh, what Clay Carson and his staff in here, they include some of his graduate papers from Crozier, then from Boston. And you see King grappling with these theologians, Paul Tillich and them. I mean, he's grappling with all of these theologians and he's putting them in conversations. There's a paper in here where he reads the ancient Egyptian theology against the European theology. So when we see the public facing king and we hear him tap into that European genealogy, and of course his father, as you say, coming into contact with Martin Luther, there, I think there are two things at play there. One of them is the, the hell-bent determination to forge a leadership class among the black quote-unquote elite. And I say quote-unquote because they don't mean they better than anybody, but people who have gone to school, people who have benefited from the struggle of our people to collect enough revenue to have a place to live that they own and maybe some small businesses that they put together some social networks like an elks or a prince hall mason stuff like that there's a hell-bent determination to use that status for the benefit of everyone else and, and for those who consider themselves quote-unquote intellectuals the idea is we must then ground this in the best human traditions of which we are aware they are not aware that even the way that they've come to this, to quote another line from the so-called Negro National Anthem, we have come over a way which with tears has been watered. In other words, mm. we have come treading a, a path through the blood of the slaughtered. In other words, we have come with a culture that we have continued to hold on to that got us through, to quote again. Then going back now, I'm talking about that... Uh, I guess I would tug on somebody like Aretha Franklin, but that would take us back to Rosetta Tharp and take us back to Marion Williams and take us back to James Cleveland and all them. How I got over. My soul looked back and wondered how I got over. You ain't got to wonder. That is the spirit force. That is the cultural force. That is that deep well. But they're not in a position when Martin, when Michael, as you say, Michael King Sr. is in school. They're not yet in a tradition, in, in, in a position to be able to access that in a way that they can reconcile with the stuff that's in the book. And the stuff that's in the book is almost exclusively white. So by the time when Michael King is at what becomes Morehouse, which he begins life as Atlanta Baptist uh, College, you know, the American Missionary Association, one of their schools, what you see is that they're grappling with the idea of providing leadership for, for a mass of people that they kind of look at as, yeah, these are our people, but they are not yet uh, uh, cultured. You know, they are not yet well studied and we've got to lift them up. And you saw that in young 15 year old Mike, uh, Michael King, Martin Luther King's. Uh, well, Michael King, formerly, as you say, his his oratory. And, you know, you see Bishop Daniel Alexander um, Payne, who was the bishop of the AME church saying, you know, you Negroes need to go to school. They're dumb. And you got to keep these dumb black preachers from up here, him and hawing, and ain't never read no books. So, so yeah, I think that's the one one of the two sources is that determination to to acquire that education, even though there's schizophrenia at foot. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that, you know, to to have dual, you know, we also talk about this dual consciousness that Black people have to have. Martin Luther King's whole life was dual consciousness. 
you know, on some level. I also want to ask you about the Gandhi thing. You know, like oh, you yeah. said, he didn't meet Gandhi. Gandhi was on record uh, horrific to black people, Africans in particular. Horrific. No question. Racist. And I think people grapple with how do you take an ideology from somebody, nonviolence, blah, 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 when he was very violent towards people with melanin, black people on the continent of Africa. How do we reconcile with that? And, I, and as I'm growing, I'm really learning about chewing up the meat, spitting out the bones, and also taking you know perspective on things. I think we get hung up on these facts and it allows us to disqualify folk. You know, because we get hung up on it. Well, he was a racist, so we throw out everything. That's right. How do you how do you see it, Doc? The same way. I mean, I, I think this is the value of study. This is the value of memory. Just as individuals have hearts of different ages, so do groups have hearts of different ages. The more we learn, the more we adjust using the momentum of the past. Gandhi was useful in terms of a framework for that moment for uh for Dr. King, for the Montgomery boycott movement, which emerges in some ways very organically, building on the thrust of what had come before, but then uh, reaching that inflection point and then surging forward. Now, it's interesting, we probably should think about this for a minute, because we know that while King is being very critical of what's going on in South Africa, what's going on in South Africa, the tripartite system with the, we talk about apartheid, but we, oh wow, that reminds me, there was a president Mm, no, I'm not going to. It was a college president, the founder of Albany State College. Anyway, that's a story for another day because he sent a book to the guy who was one of the first leaders of the apartheid government in South Africa and talking about this question of segregation and education in the United States and in South Africa and how to do it for black people in South Africa. He was himself a kind of Booker T. Washington figure in Georgia. And I finally got my hands on it. If I had to send for South Africa from, in fact, the copy I got is the copy that he sent to the guy. It's autographed to him, but anyway, from the guy. But at any rate, there's a real, King grew up in a segregated moment. And so it seems to me that that informs how he perceives this question of strategy and tactic. So when he when, when he emerges, he's looking at nonviolence, not only as a way of life for him personally, but as also a tactical thing, which he explains in all of his writings, that for some of y'all it's not going to be a, a way of life, although I think it should, but I'm, I, you know, but because uh, I think it's non-existence otherwise, but it's also a tactic. We don't have the numbers here. And of course, Gandhi in South Africa in a tripartite system where you got white and of course, whiteness in South Africa fractures once you take away everybody else. You know, those of us who've been to South Africa, spent time in South Africa, taking students there, interacted, sat and listened. Most importantly, when you travel is to listen to just travel widely, stay with people, listen. You know, we understand that whiteness fractures once you take everybody away. Ask the Boers and the British, you know, the Anglo-Boer War. We can go back. Anglo-Boer War is the origin of concentration camps in world history. If you go back and look at how they use it, that's a story for another day. In fact, I was just reading about that in a book that's completely unrelated. But since I mentioned it, because it was on my mind, Dan Stone's book, Concentration Camps, A Short History, goes back to the Anglo-Boer War, which is white on white crime, although blacks are involved. By the time you get to apartheid in 1948, they set up a tripartite system, white on top, colored in the middle, that's gonna be the Cape Malay, that's gonna be the Indians like Gandhi, who's in South Africa, and then the blacks. And so Gandhi's brutality as a lawyer in South Africa, Gandhi's indifference, Gandhi's negotiation is really 
you can really see hints of what become the Hindu nationalism. And there's a, even a brand new telephone book size book on Gandhi. There are several of those ran. In fact, there's a book called Gandhi in South Africa. And I'd have to go back there and dig it out of the back room. But which talk maybe and maybe we can talk more about this uh, at a future moment. But the idea is that part of Gandhi's uh, attitude in South Africa is self-interest. And Gandhi's, Gandhi's a Hindu, a Hindu. Gandhi's an Indian nationalist. In other words, his Indian nationalism follows him all through his life, including when he is helping lead the anti-colonial struggle in India, because what he's really after is Indian independence. That'd be nice to everybody else come along, but shit, I ain't picking you over my people. And so you see the seeds of that in South Africa. He comes to India, and what we see is that, I think, King respected the nationalism. He's taken the tactic along with the teachings, because part of the thing that the Benjamin Mazes, that the Howard Thurmans, that the Mordecai Johnsons and them learn from Gandhi, they're, they're deepening their spiritual practice. King is taking the spiritual practice and forming his practice as well, but he's also taking the strategy and tactic because Gandhi ain't that committed to nonviolence, but he's got the numbers. See, the British are the minority. They're the colonizers. We can put them out with this. The salt strikes, oh, we could do that, right? So I think that that's the short version of why it's important. Um, and well, yeah, I mean that's right. Kareem's putting Kareem's making this comment in, in, in our in our private chat that he says in 1903, Gandhi says that in South Africa the white people there should be the predominating race and the black people are troublesome, very different, live like animals. That's because the coloreds are between the whites and the blacks, and they negotiate in space to operate. And again, he's trained in the British and the European style. In fact. Uh, every time we go to South Africa, we, you know, we take the obligatory tours and then we get that old out of the way and then do what we're going to do, you know, every time we go into the old parliament house and you see the tripartite parliament, this is where the whites sit, this is where the colored sit. And we got some few of these Negroes we let play with us, but, you know, that's to keep them separate. So Gandhi, you know, uh, as my man Randy Matori wrote in his book, uh, Stigma and Culture, about HBCU politics. And the fractures that often develop between folk from the Caribbean, folk from Africa, folk who were born in diaspora, who were born in the United States. He says, everybody's trying to avoid last place. He calls it last place anxiety. Nobody want to be last as long as there's a racial hierarchy. But what King is talking about by the time he gets to be an adult, and you see some of this in this early oratory he gives, is, you know, the world is fracturing. The world is fracturing. So let me let me just do a couple other things right quick. And then and then we want to talk a little bit about the so-called Black National Anthem. And I, I'm looking forward to that. We can do that right quick. Is um King, when I said about the ministers, every minister of prominence in his line. Wait, before you do that, um not the Warnock piece. Oh, Warnock. Piece. No, that's my fault, but no, that's my fault. I should have had that in my head. I should have had that in my head. Warnock, I think, he's got two years. And there are a couple of ways he could pursue this. Broad, I mean, what do I know, right? But it seems to me that he, I guess he already, uh, uh, well, I guess it was the King celebration yesterday made public statements from, from Ebenezer, his pulpit. And I mean, you go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, those of you who've been there, you know, National Park Service has preserved the original uh, Ebenezer and also the King home and, and their Sweet Auburn, the block and everything. Shout out to those Rangers, those women and men. I love them, you know, really. Um, all the National Park Service people, but particularly those black and brown folk. And there's young people. A lot of young people work for the National Park Service. Every time I go to a site, I just, you know. But at any rate, when they take you in there and show you around, or you see in the stained glass is A.D. Williams 
and in the stained glass is Martin Luther King Sr. Now, why do I mention them? Martin Luther King Sr. marries into the minister line. So when you look at the uh, at the little uh, chart of Martin Luther King's family, you understand that every preacher comes through, you know, Martin Luther King Sr. marries into the line. His wife, Martin Luther King's mother, who of course was killed, playing the organ just at, between Sunday school and morning service in 1974, Alberta, her father was Adam Daniel Williams. Now, you know, Martin Luther King's brother was named A.D. after their grandfather, Adam Daniel. Adam was the survivor. He had a sister, Adam and Eve. Eve was his sister. He was the survivor. That's the grandfather who was a minister. He was a minister of Ebenezer Baptist Church. That's why he's in the stained glass early on. Adam Daniel's father, Willis, was born in enslavement. Willis Williams and uh, his mother was Creasy. Lucretia Williams, 30 year age difference between them. That's a whole nother story. Willis Williams is the first minister in the family. Willis Williams, father of Adam Daniel Williams, father of Alberta Christine Williams, who marries Michael King, becomes Martin Luther King. That's all the ministers. All the ministers came through his mother's line. It's important to understand that because we often think in terms of you know how these things operate. We don't think about, but 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 the reason I mention that is that. Martin Luther King's grandfather, A.D. Williams, who died in the house that Martin Luther King was born in, because that was their house. A.D. and Jenny bought that house that Martin Luther King family, you know, was raised in. A.D. Williams was a close confidant, and he was part of the leadership that came out of Reconstruction and built out the force that becomes early Black politics in Georgia. A.D. Williams was a co-founder of the Georgia Equal Rights League. It's another, and then my man James Morgan, who was one of the leading scholars on a lot of this stuff, including um, Masonic history. I love that young brother. That's my man. You know, he, he really tell you about it. He was very close friends with Henry McNeil Turner. And so all these, when I, when I look at a Raphael Warnock, without getting too deep, in fact, um, yeah, I'm thinking about, um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll talk about that another day. The, uh, there's a lot of stuff on Henry Neal Turner that's been published before. Edwin Redkey, Respect Black. But now my man Andre Johnson out of the University of Memphis has a whole shelf of books on, on Henry Neal Turner. A lot of his original writings, he's continuing to produce stuff. Look into Henry Neal Turner. They have a website, actually, where a lot of this stuff has been posted, primary documents. But when I see a Raphael Warnick, I'm not looking at the dawn of a new day in Georgia that has no precedent. To look at a Raphael, if you yank on Raphael Warnick and take black politics out, it's going to lead you back through... Uh, course Maynard Jackson and them but if you yank on Maynard Jackson too hard you're gonna see John Wesley Dodds and them fall out and that becomes the generation of Martin Luther King Sr. then A.D. Williams and before you know it you're back at Reconstruction when Henry Neal Turner and them came and they won the elections and them same hillbilly horde their great 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 grands came and said they invalidating the elections because too many Negroes ran and so when you think of the history of Reconstruction what we're seeing in 2021 we saw it before in the 1860s and 70s. This is the Reconstruction thing where they sabotaged the Reconstruction governments and they threw out Henry Turner who had been elected to the Georgia State Legislature. And this ain't 2021 where you can organize and come back and get the, you know, let's, let's win this. Henry Neal Turner was out. Henry Neal Turner said on this, right there in Atlanta, Henry Neal Turner who was cast out of his seat, Henry Turner said God himself, God himself would not come from heaven and pass judgment on my manhood. So what makes you think that I would let 
any of you buckra do so. Buckra is one of the words like for cracker, pecker wood. You, you, you know the words that your grandparents use uh, when they're not in polite company. But at any rate, except he made this public statement. Now, you know, cats now talking about, you know, this ain't my, we, this is our grandparents' civil rights movement. <laughs> you better go back and study because I don't know which, which one of us is trill enough to do that when nobody got their back in the middle of the Klan rally. So, but I'm saying that to say that Raphael Warnick sees me has 24 months. We talked about this before. Because he's he, he got he's coming up for a rematch in in, in 2024 because he's only doing he's finishing a, a term. Do we see Kelly Leffler again? Remember what she did? She backed out. You know, she kept her powder dry. I'm, I came here prepared to vote uh, to say invalidate Georgia. But I have reconsidered Kelly Leffler. See the way it's going. The hillbilly horde got her shook and she backed up out of it. Does she run again? Doug Collins, he gonna run for governor probably. So maybe he didn't run for Senate that fool. But I'm saying, but there's going to be a white nationalist ch uh, challenge for that seat. And so it seems to me that Warnock, one strategy he could pursue, and I'm not saying which one he should or shouldn't pursue, because again, all politicians, we got to use like what they are, tools. Warnock seems to me could become or to aspire to become tapping into that Ebenezer pulpit, which means Martin Luther King Jr., which means Martin Luther King Sr., which means Alberta Williams, which means uh, Willis and Creasy, which means A.D. and Jenny Parks Williams, which means John Wesley Dodds, which means black political power in Georgia and Atlanta. Tap into that whole momentum. And every Sunday you stand in that pulpit like a remix and improvement on Adam Clayton Powell. And then Monday through Friday, you're in Washington proposing legislation, tying it to your sermon message, continuing to organize. Show us, instead of the rhetorical King Day speeches about how we must call this country, nah, dude, preach your sermon about the poor. Preach that sermon on the Mount and then say, and as you all saw last week in the bill that I co-sponsored, we must now go further than even the president has proposed in terms of SNAP benefits. And when we go into the next round of budget reconciliation, because I understand President Biden, Mr. Schumer, you do not want to break the filibuster, but we have budget reconciliation. And I'm not talking about the kind of re reconciliation that tells us to beat our, shore, our swords into plowshares. I'm talking about the type of reconciliation that Chairman Sanders of the Budget Committee is engaged in now to give us another 30 billion in SNAP benefits because Jesus said, Remember what you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto myself. In other words, preach your sermon and make it policy. You got 24 months, bro. And so if you don't do that, if you follow the failed democratic policy of triangulation, chasing them phantom white voters, you're going to set it up so that in two years, the Democrats, and I'm not talking about being a hoopster for the Democrat. Anybody who thinks that I'm a cheerleader for the Democrat has not been listening, hasn't been paying attention. Man, they've been calling me all kind of stuff. Dashiki Democrat. And I love it, though, because, you know, my mom, you say you open your mouth, put your brain on display. It's like you clearly not paying attention. But if, if in two years, if they don't pursue a different kind of strategy, the, 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 the white nationalists have realized that they can't win anymore with that fragile coalition. So what they're moving now to do, and what we've seen over the last week, as we both have seen, all of us have seen, they're trying now to act like the last four years didn't happen 
without saying it like that, hoping to keep that white nationalist, quote unquote, Trump core and bring back the people who don't mind white nationalism at all and who are just, they just don't want you to say it out loud. That's why when you read why we can't, where do we go from here? Yeah. You know Mother King said, Mother King said, the worst white people are the white liberals. So Dr. King, so 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 Raphael, brother warning, Senator Warning, tap into your Martin Luther King, confront the white liberals, the lukewarm. Now they say something about spitting stuff out of your mouth. I ain't gonna get into the theology because it's not my <laughs> you ain't out of my, but I mean, if Warnick is serious now, there's a path, but I don't know that he would take a path like that. Honey. I don't know that he would. We shall see. Yeah. And we shall remember. Oh, we're going to remember because they that's what they're working on now. They ain't never going to forget. They, they are already trying to triangle. I know there's a couple of things. Let, let me mention this because yep. um, on the lift, every voice and sing. For those of you, I mean, we heard what, well, pause, pause. We were, you know, early in the week, a thought came to you. We hit me a text. Hey, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about lift, every voice and sing. On say why? Why did that come to your mind, Professor Hunter? Do you remember? Yeah. Um. Clay. Uh, was it Claiborne? Oh, yeah, uh, Claiborne. Yes. Our Claiborne. I'm sorry. The one mm -hmm. that got Biden elected. How about that? Carolina. wanted to make this the wanted to replace the Star Spangled Banner with uh, the Black National Anthem, and I lost my mind. I, for a brief period, I I blacked out for just a second. I was I was. Uh, Absolutely not, Clyburn. Absolutely. I, that he even uttered that publicly. So I just wanted to know what you thought about. The, I, the, I, the, I, I'm I, like, I, only the role we tried. Uh, hell, ooh, ooh. No, no, right. no. Y'all don't get that. I'm sorry. You, you weren't on that road. Right. No. <laughs> you know what? And I'll be very delicate here. You know <laughs> Why? Well, no, because, you know, there, there's a saying, particularly in Black national circles, that in Pan-Africanist circles, that every old person, not an elder, but in the case of Jim Clyburn, you know, I'm raising the South with a certain level of respect. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, we can disagree. We should, we should be respectful anyway. No, we are being respectful. Right, we should be respectful anyway, right? Right, that's our humanity. But at the same time, we shouldn't be stupid. That's a dumb idea <laughs> from an elder who has earned the right to talk and say dumb stuff. Because it's like every other elder we have in our families or communities that talk crazy, you bring them a plate or put a blanket over them. Say, all right, Papa, it's good. It's okay. It's okay. You don't, you don't. No, this is clearly because see, but here's the thing in terms of heart of different ages, Jim Clyburn been talking like that since he was in South Carolina. If you listen very closely to the eulogy he gave for John Lewis at Lewis's funeral, you know, Clyburn was from the kind of moderate ish wing of the youth movement, the civil rights movement. But without getting too deep into the politics of Jim Clyburn, who's an old social studies teacher, you know, and without beating him up too much about it, let's go to the videotape. My friend, a sister who you've had conversations with and broadcast, uh, Imani Perry at Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, at um, Princeton. I'm thinking about Princeton. Yeah, Princeton. Uh, you know, I got black colleges on my mind. They forwarded in my mind already. But uh, Imani wrote a book a couple of years ago called May We Forever Stand, A uh, History of the Black National Anthem. It's an excellent book. I, I encourage everyone to get it. She kind of walks through uh, the, the origins of the book. And of course, she starts where you everyone has to start. And, and I thought I saw something Imani said the other day, said, you know, you know, said, I don't agree with Clyburn, 
but you know, I understand, you know. And of course, and you know, her people, she she born in Alabama. She never wasn't raised there, but I mean, you know, her mom and people, you know, Alabamans. So you know, my mom's from Alabama. So you know, it's certain protocols, right? Home training is called it. But what did the man who wrote it say? This is James Weldon Johnson. This is his biography. Get this. Along this way, the autobiography of James Weldon Johnson. This brother. Uh, well, this is what James Weldon Johnson said when they said, well, you know, the Star Spangled Banner is an anthem and uh, lift your voice and sing is an anthem. He said, no, 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 no. James Weldon Johnson, the author of the so-called Black National Anthem, said, when you hear the Star Spangled Banner with all that killing and all that, you know, blood, blood, he said, it sounds like a drinking song. Now, remember, James Weldon Johnson was a poet. You understand? He's badly written. It's like a drinking song. Lip every voice and sing. It's much more noble. That's a hymn. So when Jim, Jim Clyburn says that, uh, Jim Clyburn says, you know, let's make this the national hymn. You know what? This is how I might approach it if he and I, if I were talking to him. I said, I tell you what, uh, Congressman Clyburn, I will, I will, I will support that a hundred percent. When you let all of us know two things. Number one, the difference between a hymn and an anthem. And I know you know it because you didn't say national anthem. You said national hymn. Number one, the difference between a hymn and an anthem. And number two, whether or not we pray to the same God in the United States of America. You answer those two questions satisfactorily, I'm with you. You know why it can't be no national hymn? Because ain't no national God for two reasons. One, you claim that you separate church from state, even though we know that's a lie. You know, read Pauline Mayer's book, uh, American Scripture, any of this stuff. You know, we know what y'all do. Uh, God's not mentioned in the Constitution, but it's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence and the Pledge of Allegiance and on the money. And by God, I know that's that God y'all worship, the one that y'all hold up in the hillbilly horde when you came down. It ain't no God we worship. But at any rate, a hymn is different. And so that's what well and John, but here's the thing I love about this, Karen. For those of you, when you get this book, go to page 154. No, I'm sorry. Go to page 152. James Weldon Johnson, born in Jacksonville, Florida, 1871. His brother Rosemont, two years younger than him, John Rosemont Johnson, went by, went by Rosemont his whole life, born 1873. So they born right after the end of enslavement. They're born in Jacksonville. Their mom is from the Bahamas. The Johnson brothers evolved into two very powerful cultural workers. James Wan Johnson's a hell of a poet. He's a, he's, a, he's a man of letters. In fact, get his autobiography, the autobiography of an ex-colored man. Well, that's the, 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 one, the piece he wrote. He means kind of a thinly veiled. It's very interesting. But anyway, along this way is the one you should start with. And you see the history of his parents, the history of Jacksonville, which had a public school system very early on, which is one reason why Imani and them think maybe that's why the, the, they moved down there and so forth and so on. Anyway, it takes a, out of a 400 page book, it takes about to page 152 where you get to why they wrote this song. Here's the thing. Because the brother Rosemont becomes 
a, a major songwriter in Tin Pan Alley, Black Tin Pan Alley in New York. These cats is cosmopolitan. He making money. Rosemont Johnson was a dude who was making money as a songwriter. They come along around the same time of another uh, Bahamian by way of California, Burt Williams, Egbert Williams. Burt Williams, this is the Mr. Show crowd. These are the people who, you know, you uh, be early, you be Blake and them. I mean, you know, these guys are hitting their stride or have already been established in this age where black people are becoming culture. Think about, it's not the same, but it's close enough for young people to think about this. Think about bad boy. Think about Def Jam, except don't think about it in uh, 1980s, 1990s. Think about 1900. Say so making money is song, popular songs. So they write ditties and things that are kind of cute, right? Watch this. So they are in, uh, they making money. So he's in New York with his brother. He writes about how they're making money. They're doing these things. He says, when I got back to Jacksonville, I found that my artistic ideas and plans were undergoing a revolution. He says, frankly, I was floundering badly. The things that I've been trying to do seem vapid and non-essential. And the thing I felt a yearning to do was so nebulous that I couldn't take hold of it or even quite make it out. In this state, satisfactory expression first came through the writing of a short dialect poem. One night, just after I'd finished the poem, I was at Mr. McBeath's house talking about school matters, about books and literature. He read a long poem he had written on Lincoln, a Lincoln poem, the expression of a Southern white man. I thought it was good and told him so. I also thought, but I did not say, that there was yet to be a great, written a great poem on Lincoln, the expression of a Negro. Aloud, I repeated to him my dialect poem, Since You Went Away. He thought it was good enough for me to try to, uh, to try it, send it to one of the most important magazines. I sent it to Century, and it was promptly accepted and printed. And he said, outside of what he had done at Atlanta University, where he went to school with Walter White and them cats, he said, it, nothing of his had ever been printed in a magazine like that. So they printed it. That poem since you went away his brother wrote music to it and it was eventually because it was recorded he said it was a first sung by a model the metropolitan opera baritone it was after it was recorded for the phonograph by john mccormick with a violin obligato played by chrysler and it was again recorded by louis grevier and still again by paul robeson it continues to find a place on concert programs Look up since you went away on YouTube. If you want, you'll see Paul. You can hear Paul Robeson singing this Jane Weldon Johnson poem. But then during the winter, winter he writes some more dialect poems. He's back and forth between New York, and here we go. He says a group of young men decided to hold on February twelfth, February twelfth, nineteen hundred, a celebration of Lincoln's birthday. I was put down for an address, which I began preparing. But I want to do something else also. Remember now, he's saying my creative juices ain't flowing, so I'm writing these little dialect poems that my brother turns into songs. We making this money. But what I want to say, I can't get out of my breast. It's just in there, and I feel like I'm in a creative rut. Watch this. My thoughts begin buzzing around a central idea of writing a poem on Lincoln. Remember, he said, ain't been no great one written by a Negro. He says, but I couldn't net those thoughts. I couldn't get those thoughts together. So I gave up the project as beyond me. At any rate, beyond me to carry out in so short a time. And my poem on Lincoln is still to be written. Now he publishes along this way in the 1930s. So he ain't, it's 30 years after this. And my, mind you, Monty talks about this as well in her book. Um, people used to ask James Weldon Johnson, how did you write Lift Your Voice and Sing? And he'd tell the same story with slight variations, but this is the one for the record, right? So he says, my central idea, however, took on another form. Cause he's saying, we're gonna have this Lincoln thing and then we're gonna go and then we're gonna, you know, but yeah, I, Wait, February when? The 12th? I ain't got no time to really write no. Nah, I'll get that up. But I want to do something. I'm in this rut. Let me, so watch this. He says, I talked it over with my brother. I talked over the thought I had in mind. 
and we plan to write a song to be sung as part of the exercises. We plan better still to have it sung by school children, a chorus of 500 voices. Now, mind you, Monty writes about this as well. She's got a whole chapter on all the black schools. My Angelou writes, if you ever read, I know why the caged bird sings. Uh, Ralph Ellison writes about, I mean, everybody, this is a song, this is the song that begins to be singing all the black schools, K-12. Martin Luther King grew up singing this. The man put it in his 15-year-old award-winning oratory. <laughs> so here we go. He says, I got my first line. Lift every voice and sing. Not a startling line, but I worked along, grinding out the next five. When near the end of the first stanza, there came to me the lines. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. The spirit of the poem had taken hold of me. I finished the stanza and turned it over to Rosamond. Now, there are accounts that say that Rosamond is in there in the house playing on the piano with the melody that we know now as the song while, while Weldon is pacing outside on the porch and up and down the steps trying to think through this. Here's the next. In composing the other two, the two other stanzas, I did not use pen and paper. Let's stop right there. Jay-Z going to the studio, he don't have no pen or paper. James Weldon Johnson wrote in the International Anthem, he don't do pen or pen or pen or paper either. He says, I did not use pen and paper. While my brother worked at his musical setting, I paced back and forth on the front porch, repeating the lines over and over to myself, going through all of the agony and ecstasy of creating as I worked through the opening and middle lines of the last stanza. And these are the ones he chose to include. And as far as I'm concerned, when they get to this verse right here, that's why you sing all three verses. My favorite verse is that last verse. Well, Johnson puts in his autobiography, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has led us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray, lest our feet Stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Congressman Clyburn, this has nothing to do with those that captured your ancestors and made them pick that rice in South Carolina, sir. He continues, I could not keep back the tears. Well, John said, I cannot keep back the tears. He ain't got a pencil or paper. He said, I cannot keep back the tears and made no effort to do so. I was experiencing the transports of the poet's ecstasy. Feverish ecstasy was followed by that contentment, that sense of serene joy, which makes artistic creation the most complete of all human experiences. He goes on to write in that chapter that they did the song and him and Rosemont forgot about it. Remember, this is a this is a quick thing they did on deadline. He out there like, I don't know, man, but I just, you know what, bro? I got that first stanza. You work on that. And I like to imagine in my mind that Rosemont in there hitting that piano and he hits that blue note. Boom, doom, and he's out there pacing. He ain't got no paper. God of a God of our weary years. God of our silent tears. And the tears start coming. Bro, take this. It's done. Look at them, they sang, yay, black guy, it's over. Well, Johnson says, in the next few years, and then Imani charts it in her book. This thing hits like wildfire. 1919, the NAACP makes it their official song. Well, Johnson says, I started seeing it everywhere. The school children of Jacksonville kept singing it. Some of them went off to other schools and kept singing it. Within 20 years, the song was being sung in schools and churches and on special occasions throughout the South. They sang it on Emancipation Day. That's always January 1. That was the song. 
They sang it Juneteenth celebrations. They sang it at school assemblies. Carter Woodson, they got lessons in the Negro history books. And I got all the Negro history books piled up there in the back. They got lessons teaching you, teaching school children, go research and talk about what this means to you. James Weldon Johnson said, colored wise, all of them, he says nothing. James Weldon Johnson, by the way, died in, a, in an automobile accident in 1938 in Maine. His life was tragically cut short. He was a he was, had a chair at, at Fisk. He was a professor at Fisk at that time. This is five years before he died. He said, nothing that I have done has paid me back so fully in satisfaction as being the part creator of this song. I am always thrilled deeply when I hear it sung by Negro children. I am lifted up on their voices and I'm also carried back and enabled to live through again the exquisite emotions. I felt at the birth of the song. My brother and I, in talking, and I'll end here, have often marveled at the results that followed what we considered an incidental effort, an effort made under stress and with no intention other than to meet the needs of a particular moment. The only comment we can make is that we wrote better than we knew. No, Congressman, no, you're not gonna match this to Francis Key in the hold of a, of a British ship praying for the Americans to win as enslaved Africans, as Gerald Horn reminds us, are trying to swim to that same ship to escape because they are against you, you racist. You go to hell. Keep your anthem. We got a hymn. And no, Congressman, that is not the American hymn. James Weldon Johnson had told you what it is, bro. Anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> uh... This is America. Ain't it? Yeah. <laughs> There's a glee um, and a joy when we come together um, in these spaces and a calm and a peace. Uh, I just mm -hmm. want to thank you for that um, because the possibilities are endless. And as I look at the room of, of people in the comments, because I'm I got one eye here, a multitask. <laughs> don't let them tell you you can be a jack of all master of none. Right. Don't let them tell you that. We are Africans. We are African. We can master it all. Come on. So I just want to thank you for that. You know, um, every day I listen to you in different ways on different platforms, and I'm reminded that we can do all things. So we have to. Well, I look at you, what you built. I can't thank you enough. Um, speaking of that, um, over the next couple of weeks, and you know, you and I have been in conversation about this. We are going to, you know, we are in the midst of building a platform. So let me just publicly thank the team. Thank you, Kareem. Thank you, Carl, Uraeus, and Donica. Uh, thank you all of the folks that are literally right now annotating and dropping the books. Uh, this is a very special platform. It is a learning platform. Yes. So all the folks asking about donations and we do, we're grateful for, you know, the, the, the comments and the, the, the cash apps and the money, but hold on to your money. Hold on to your money. I get it. You know, uh, y'all don't want YouTube to get a part of it. We have, we are building a space for us where everything, all of the books, somebody said, can you put the books up? I've been doing it, but I'm going to do it in a way that now makes it make sense in yeah. a space. And we got to add, I should have put this, this is Lift Every Voice and Sing. Sandra Catherine Johnson is the executor of the James Weldon Johnson papers. I'm just dropping it because this is another one you should get. This is a book where she asks, and Julian Bond wrote the foreword, they ask a hundred different black people what that song means to them. Mm. So I just wanted to mention, and, and Lift Every Voice and Sing is probably one of the most most written about books in children's books literature. I know a lot of y'all, if you go get those good, those children, I can't even page through them. I should say this right quick, I'm sorry. No, I, should just, I should just page, as I page through them, some of the children's books that lift every voice and sing has been 
adapted to will bring tears to your eyes because they go line for line, they lift every voice, and then you'll see a picture of the artist conceiving that. Till her, and then when you get to that God of our weary years, you page mm. it. may be a black woman on her knees scrubbing the floor. I mean, you know, it's like, no, y'all don't get that. South Africa messed up because they took Kosisikilele Africa. That's a whole story for another day. And they, in order to reconcile with the South Africa, the white South Africans, they created a new national anthem. And most of it, so Kosisikilele Africa, Malupagani so Pandawayo. Uh, God bless Africa. God bless the people. God bless the land. You know, thank you, God. Thank you. God bless Africa. That's the hint. But then, midway through, you hear the old South African anthem. In South Africa. Anthems are about bombs and war and shit. You can't put it, jam it in it together. The best that you and, and you know, just to put a fine point on that, there is no reconciliation. No, with anything born in hatred, come on, destruction oh. and death. Mm. We cannot reconcile with this. There's no healing. No healing. There's no, no healing. healing. We no. got. We're gonna have to create a new thing. That's right. Where else? You took us all the way back. You took us all. In fact, you mentioned this. You took us all the way back to where we started, Karen, when you said. Uh, you know, Dr. King and them, I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. Some stuff got to burn. And I know you mentioned one other thing too, too sis, uh, United States versus Dustin Higgs, the uh, the Supreme Court the, uh, yesterday. Oh, I wanted to read that on your Mayor piece. Yeah. Um, I wanted to read her whole uh, dissent, but I'm looking at the time too. And yeah, I'm looking at the time. But I, I only mentioned to say that what Sotomayor is doing right now is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. And I'm not a Ruth Bader Ginsburg fan on a couple of points on other things I am. But Sotomayor is doing in dissent what you have to do in terms of the law to put a place marker down for the day you can make that the majority opinion. And she is she absolutely tapped into some, although she's losing legal stuff. I mean, really, what was this? They, they have put more people to death in the la, in this administration in the last few months than they have in, in the, the last six decades. And she that, names and lists every single person who all still by Trump's government. That's right. That's executed, right. including a black man today. That's right. That's right. And so and, I, and I'm only mentioning it because and like you said, because you brought it up and also to tie it together to what we just said in terms of this question of spirituality. Um any lawyer will tell you, particularly folks who have worked in the federal courts. So, you know, one of my best former students, brilliant sister, Angela Porter, who's in Minnesota, who clerked for two federal judges. You know, she'll be quick to tell you if you don't know how the death penalty stuff works, don't get in it in terms of don't get caught up in, you know, what the person did or what they didn't do. Well, they murdered somebody said, hey, no, no, no. You got it. When you approach it through the law, you have to understand that there are certain ways that you can and can't put people to death if you're following the law. What Sotomayor is writing about in dissent is they have thrown all those rules out. And when they can't win at the district court level, because the D.C. Court of Appeals stopped it, it's not one of the executions. If they can't win at the Court of Appeals level, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals was going to sit in bunk, meaning all of them going to sit determined. If they don't think they can win, they are now appealing directly to the Supreme Court because they have the numbers. This is why, you know, elections, mm -mm, mm -mm. if you don't know how the courts work, do not talk about it or at least say, I don't know enough to talk about it. Because see what we're seeing now, this is what happens when you have federal appointments at every level, district, 
Court of Appeals, and it was the Fourth Circuit, which was the last one that Trump and them flipped with their appointees, but the ones that said, go ahead and kill them in this last couple of things. Anyway, go ahead. Give them the thumbs up. Uh, the near nearly four thousand people in this room. Yes. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. We're gonna mess with these algorithms here on YouTube till we, <laughs> as we build, because two things can be true and they should be. We yes. should be everywhere we want to be. We should be. Uh, also, for folks who you know, car names a lot of names. We are here to remember every name he drops will be cataloged and we'll have an annotation and we'll have a link because uh, we got to re-unearth the people and their connections. So you are tying threads literally to sew up our history. And I appreciate every name you drop because as I'm going back through every video and I get why people watch it two and three times, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm now going down different rabbit holes because you're mentioning a name that just sparks my imagination. So I want to thank you for that. So if you don't have the patience to go through the names, that's on you, you know, just close your ears, shut your mouth, put the straw in the mouth. For some of us, every name you drop means something because you're not just dropping them just to name no. people. You no, 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 no. Purpose. And I'm leaving and, most of the names out. That's the thing. <laughs> right. Uh, and 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 if we don't reclaim our history through this process, no one else is going to do it. So um, stop complaining. So I just want to say that. And somebody had a question about the the stained glass in Martin Luther King's. Um, church in Ebenezer uh-huh yeah, Ebenezer that there's a white Jesus in that stained glass oh, and yeah. you know yeah. white Jesus in a lot of our churches uh when you know better you do better yeah um, yes yeah. <laughs> so we, we work with them no question um and I think that was it so we have questions uh from folk uh so you ready oh yes okay Definitely. all right let me let me welcome in Mr. Samba who is originally from Senegal coming to us from New York hi Samba hey Baba, how you doing Hello, can you guys hear me? Yes, the home of Shake Out the Throat. Man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Actually, actually, uh, I, I live right next to Professor Babakar Sal. I know. Oh, I heard him Sal, yes. yes, yes, yes. Abu Bakr Mutalam and Babakar Sal, these are the disciples of Shake Out the Joe. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm a fan. Uh, no, thank, thank you. Thank you. Where are you saying, Wolof Nangadef? No, not that. That is our lingua franca. But yes. uh, I'm I had a question. Senegal is the, the largest port of Africans into America. That's one of the greatest ports from Africa to the New World. Senegal? You mean, you mean like from Gore? Is that what you're talking about? Or you, is that the largest? I think, I think it's smaller than a port that uh, we have or they built in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, mm-hmm. but it is but, one of the major ones. But 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 Phyllis, but Phyllis Wheatley is one of, uh, is one of your fam- the family. Yes, that's yes. right. That's right. <laughs> I like I like to think that uh, Harriet is from, from there also. That no question. Aram Minta is really it's really a name you see. But oh, really? Aram and Aminta. Really? So very possibly. Yeah. Is it is it um? It's not Wolof. Is it Arabic? Wolof, which. Possibly, because all these names you have, all these uh, of course. Uh, influence, this, this uh, Arabic influence, because they come very early in Africa, way before the white folks. What, what, what part of Senegal are you from? I'm from Dakar, born and oh, raised. Are you from the city? Yeah. The cosmopolitan. Yeah. You know, I was just, I was just, um, I was just going over with uh, one of my young people this exhibition catalog on Amadou Bamba. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because we were, yeah, we were yeah. talking. 
There you go. That's one of that's one of the great icons from Senegal. Oh man, I'm a Dubamba man. I mean, anyway. So I'm sorry, brother. Yeah. So please, yes. So what's yeah, going yeah, on? yeah. I do. I do have a question. Uh, nothing to do with today's topic, but as you and Professor Hunter tend to say, right? How things? How do we free ourselves, or who we are to ourselves? I wonder. I wonder if you can get there. If we still buy into this concept of people of color, because as long as we do that, we are assuming white is standard and we are the other, and we cannot be the other, can we? We are the original people. That's right. We think that's something we have to, we have to somehow change. I wonder what you guys think about that. I agree with you, brother. I agree with you, son. But I mean, you know, I don't use people of color, even as I understand in the American context where it came from. So. Very quickly. And in fact, uh, Sterling Stuckey is a good source on this in his book, Slave Culture. He's got a chapter on this whole, quote unquote, he calls the names controversy. Uh, and then there are others who've written about it. Uh, I remember a very good article in the Journal of American Ethnic History, um, Betty Kaya Thomas, my friend Betty Kaya Thomas, who's at Temple and one of our great Babas uh, at James Turner, retired now, living in uh, in New York from Ithaca, New York, Cornell. Col People of color kind of emerges in the 19th century, early 19th century in the United States as a way for some of the black folk who are working out, trying to figure out liberation movements among the so-called free blacks uh, as a phrase to use to try to say, we are people just like you. In other words, it's kind of a, it's almost like an, it's almost like an abolitionist platform kind of thing. You want to not, you, you need to stop treating us differently. We see it again uh, prominently. There are other places, but cluster around the end of the 19th century you know t thomas fortune and other talking about colored people and people like that again with that same logic and then of course by the time we get into the first quarter of the 20th century we still see it people of color colored people in the lacp the advancement of colored people the idea is people is our common humanity and we just people of color or colored people we also see it in places like louisiana i mean that's a whole nother thing free people of color which is you know there's their color gradations their class gradations who's your mother who's your father did you come from the french i mean and that has a has a kind of a nastier connotation in some ways won't get too deep into that anyway long story short in 2020 now my my assertion and I, and i agree with you the normative default position this is how whiteness maintains its power it hides behind the normative language so we say people, and then people say, well, what about people of color? No, you see, you just reinforce whiteness because you assume people means white people. So when people say people of color, I very quickly say non-whites. And I don't even think that's the best language. Maybe the best, you know, but-, but I, I think um, Francis Cress Welsing, the global majority, and I don't know if she coined that, but it resonated with me, the global majority, because it puts on its ass this notion that we're minorities. Yes. You know, and that minority thing is on purpose. So as soon as you say no, nope, global majority, they got problems. A big problem. Look, look, Dr. King, why, where do we go from here? Chapter six, the world house. Mm. Dr. King is like, we're the majority. He was saying that in 57. We were if we had gone on in that Ghana speech, both of the ones he gave, he said, We're the majority. That's that's exactly right. So, but people try to shrink King. I have a dream where you will be this Dr. King was colorblind. You clearly haven't read a word of Dr. King. Dr. King, like Samba, like what you said, Karen, in naming the global majority, Dr. King, in fact, this is, what, this is what he says often. He says, Black people in America, we are citizens of the world. And as we embrace our world humanity, he says it's in 57 at that prayer breakfast in the Lincoln Memorial. As we embrace our world humanity, we understand that 
the sins of colonialism and imperialism and the sins of what is happening to black people in the United States, the Negro in the United States, are the same sins. That comes into the ear very differently than I have a dream of little black children and white children. Nah, y'all stop editing Martin King. King was clear on this. And don't act like he just got clear on it the last two years of his life. He's been thinking like that since he was a teenage boy and probably before. So Samba, no, people of color. And, and when people say it, and then we get in these conversations, people are still going to use people of color. You can't make people do nothing. But I yeah. know, the, you know, the beautiful thing I like about this, Karen, you say this a lot. We, we both do. And we all know this. We just keep trying to pour a clean glass of water. Don't get no arguments. <laughs> you know, people will come to it. Indoctrination is so hard to break. Um, I struggle with it too. You know, and I slip up every now and then, but it, you know, it's practice. It's practice. You know? We're not black. Black is a, is, is a, is a comparative uh, designation that always puts white at the top of the food chain. My, Malcolm said that right when yes, he was reading dictionary. So yes, yeah, we're not black either. We're the global majority. Oh yeah. Humanity. We could do that. The founders, the birth of humanity. We, that's we right. We get nasty with it. Uh, that's, right. that's right. Oh, and I, I should mention this too. It isn't just, it isn't just who we would think that would be trying to steer us in a certain way to think about how these conversations were going on. Going back to one night, Miami, whether it be Martin and Malcolm, here's a little pamphlet called King, Malcolm and Baldwin. Mm. Kenneth Clark is the Kenneth Clark in these wow. questions he's asking Martin Luther King and them. And if y'all really want to get into it after Dr. King was killed, the Ford Foundation, some more people gave him some money. By the way, uh, sh shout out to uh, Dr. Alondra Nelson, Sister Alondra Nelson. This sister late from uh, Columbia on the faculty of Columbia, brilliant scholar of race. She wrote a whole book on the social life of DNA. I mean, brilliant scientist. She was over the Social Sciences Research Council. She still is, but she is transitioning now. She's going to be one of the senior deputies uh, dealing with science in the Biden-Harris administration. That's a black woman who mm. is a whole beast. So I just thought about it because, you know, these foundations, Elizabeth Alexander now, you know, you got Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation. They give out money for people to do work. The Ford Foundation, and there's a whole series of books that deal with this. Here's one right here called Top Down, the Ford Foundation, Black Power and the Reinvention of Racial Liberalism, Karen Ferguson. After Dr. King was killed, you know, the government, private industry, they say, look, we can't let these Negroes just come out with this black power stuff. We, we got to be able to shape some of this. So they go talk to some black people and these black intellectuals, some of them and say, how can we get that? Because, you know, this ain't the first time we've had black spokespeople that we didn't pick, that people just elevate and put out. This is a book called The Haverford Discussions, a black integrationist manifesto for racial justice. You see the names, Kenneth, Kenneth Phipps Clark, St. Clair Drake, Ralph Ellison, John Hope Franklin, all these people, maybe uh, Kenneth Clark is in there. Ken Clark is asking King, what you think about Malcolm? I mean, this separatism stuff. And he's calling you this, that the King's like, well, I don't know. It's not it's more complicated than that. I mean, then he comes in and asks Malcolm, what you think about Dr. King? Didn't you say, he said, yeah, you know, I don't think Dr. King's strategy is right. I think, you know, these people just going to beat the hell out of you. You can't, what did you get out of uh, Montgomery, but uh, the right to go eat a sandwich at the, at the Crackers uh, store and he still owned the store. Then he's asking Baldwin, I'm like, dude, I respect Kenneth Clark. Kenneth Clark, Mamie Clark, the doll test and Brown versus board. But be very clear. It ain't just white people who, by locking us into this idea of black, white binaries and America and the domestic agenda, lead us off the path. King and them were always bigger than the United States. So, you know, when you see little things like this, always be reminded that anybody telling you that we're not citizens of the world, that we are not the global majority, that we should focus on here exclusively, 
that's somebody who has, has a lot more work to do. Mm. And some of them have an agenda. I was going to say, or somebody paying them. You know, paying them well. No question. <laughs> All right, let's welcome Josie. Josie is coming in in her car. Not hey, sure Josie. where in the world Josie Hello. is. Hi, hey. Josie. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I oh, like awesome. that framing. I like that up through the frame. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, I'm, I had to bring my mother to get her vaccine. She's 89 and I'm her caretaker. So I'm in the car outside yeah. the car. God yeah. is, is she in, um, she's in there now she's in yeah she's in the, she's in the clinic and um you know oh, i hope she, I, I thought you could meet her because my mother's 89 we're from st vincent in the caribbean and my mother has my mother trained us as little people to go to the market square for political discussions and my mother has been marching in fact uh the george floyd marches in newark Yes. With POP, with People's Organization for Progress. Oh, of course. She was she was out there at 88 with her oh. with her mask, with her eye, and with me with a beach chair. But <laughs> my mother says, you know, her her position is you gotta be counted. You gotta show up. Yeah. And you can't wait too late to be counted and too late to show up. Yes. So oh, um so yeah. So that's I mean, we would have been at the with the MLK March with Larry Ham today, but we had to come and do her vaccine. Oh, Larry Ham. Listen, the people called for progress. I remember yeah. at uh, Baba Amiri's funeral uh, at Mary yeah. Baraka. P.O.P. Y'all are legends. <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, I was I was actually Larry's Ham press writer for his Senate campaign. Oh. Um, Larry's a fierce, fierce brother. And yes. um, and we're we're we're, um, you know, I'm helping some young people to do a what we call a popcast to create activism in a new generation. Um, so yeah, Larry is alive and Larry will continue to be alive and so many others, um, Baba Zaid, oh, uh, and so many others. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Thank, thank we can, you, Josie, for I this mean, work. That's so important. I have to, I mean, well, I remind my man, uh, Todd Stephen Burroughs, who teaches at Seton Hall, who's been, you were know, working for many years with Pop. Yeah. I mean, that, that just reminds me of him. Thank you so yeah. much for that continued struggle and that continued work in Newark. Well, Todd is a Todd is a friend and actually Todd put us in touch. He I'm the one yes. in the email. And yes. I'm the one. Okay, it's yes. good to see you. Yes, 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 yes. I'm the one. Um, you know, I am I am so so you know, I'm from the Caribbean and um uh, and so the, when I engage in in work in um, in America, I engage in work from a Pan-Africanist perspective. And so when you started a conversation today, I mean, I have so many questions and I have so many questions every week for you guys, but I just take my notes and, you know, um, like everyone else, I'm taking my notes and getting my books. Um, and so, you know, and, and I, um, and so I want to go into my question uh, and let me just say, I share your links with all of my people back in St. Vincent. Oh, that's, oh. Um, you know, because uh, because we, you know, I come out of um, a political organizing movement in St. Vincent. This is po this is Maurice Bishop era. Oh, you know, this is you know, this is um, that whole. So I'm part of that generation. And my cousin, actually, Ralph Gunsavs is oh, the I'm prime minister. You. He's my he's my cousin. That's the that, that so, was the name when I think of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I think about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's my cousin. And, okay. and and so the so I come out of that that, you know, that tradition and being raised in that. And, you know, I got Franz Fanon's book, Black Skin, White Mask, when I was nine from my brother who was smuggling what? Um, 
papers from the eye out of the Iron Curtain into St. Vincent. So we come we come into this space from a Pan-Africanist perspective, and we come into and the work that I do um, in here when I do work on on um, on social justice. Yeah. Uh, what I say to folks is. You know, I don't do work around racial equity. I do work around black liberation. I know that's right. And my and your blackness is not my Africanness. Come on. And I say that on. to young people. Yes. And and by the way, I came up with that particular mantra based on you and Professor Hunter. Really? So it's just a recent I say to people, your your blackness is not my Africanness. Oh no, that's you know what's so funny? I mean, I think you all have demonstrated that to us out of the Caribbean. In fact, I have a very good friend, Seal Daniel, who is, uh, she went to school in, um, I guess, Montreal. I know the Canadian uh -huh. link. It was- Yeah, a, we have a lot of that. Yes, yes, we do. I, I forget the name of the school now that the students, mostly from the Caribbean, took over and they yeah. broke into the computer room and, oh, I have the books here somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> so, 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 but, but with all due respect and gratitude for the fact that that language has emerged and you kind of have taken it and moved, Sounds like you've been doing this since you were a little girl. You were going to the you sound like some Walter Rodney kind of stuff, y'all. Yeah, so I come, yeah, so I get so you know, Walter Rodney and Fanon are books because I have my siblings are 15 years my senior, Aha. and so I and so and they were and my uncle was um a leader in the black liberation in the 70s when you have black liberation movements. So okay. my uncle Stanley, right? Yeah, so oh, you know, wow. we were, yeah, so we were raised sort of like in that space. Um, and, 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 and by the way, we will, so you, you engage in your work and your life from a political construct that drives you to liberation. No question. And so in this, and so my, you know, and so it brings me to sort of one of my hundred million questions for you and Professor Hunter and the one today, because I like the way you started off class today, huh. Tim Snyder from the New York times did a piece called the abyss. Yes. And when yes, he frames. Yes. Brilliant piece, right? Yeah. And so he frames the insurrectionists um, as breakers for the Republican Party. And he talks about the gamers who are the politicians. And I want to expand the gamers because I see the gamers, which is the challenge we have when you talk about when Professor Hunter poses a question, how do we move forward? And, I, and, and the idea is the gamers are the white neoliberals and white neoliberalism that yes. not just, and, and, and separate from the 74 million, we have assumptions around. That's right. When you look at the white neoliberal media, and I'm talking about both black and white people. No engage in this white neoliberal politics. The idea that somehow we have overcome white supremacy. Somehow we've overcome because you cannot have capitalism without white supremacy. And to break the back of capitalism, you have to break white supremacy. No question. So, we have not we we're not um if we are choosing the path through white neoliberal politics mm -hmm. which a black elite are, and let me say brother forgive me hbcus are we're oh, creating no, a strat no, 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 no. we're, we're creating a stratification yes. within public education for black people yes by seeing hbcus being funded by white neoliberals as they cloak their white supremacy sure. and their capitalism sure. and so the the conversation you know i you know if we're trying to figure out the black mm. liberation struggle to the next as we move through and we have assumptions about what Biden and Harris will do for us. Are we ready to see ourselves fully mm. complicit in the insurrection? Because white neoliberalism has from is fermenting all of this. And so we, we have assumptions about access. 
assumptions about power, assumptions about influence. And if we look at this through a Pan-African paradigm, if we look at this through a revolutionary struggle, yes, then we have to accept and come to terms with our complicity and to understand that white neoliberalism very true. are the gamers very true. of the insurrection. Let me, let me ask you, Josie, first of all, I agree lockstep with everything you said. I, in fact, anyone who disagrees, it seems to me, would have to show their work. How did you get to the disagreement point? <laughs> because, I mean, everything is, is there for us to see. Okay. Let me ask you, because it's something I struggle with. And, you know, you and I both, and I'm sure that many others who are listening to our conversation and thinking, you know, have had fractures with comrades. Yeah. With, and yeah. particularly the politics of a place like Newark. I mean, you know better than I do, than any of us. Every, going back to the Committee for a Unified Newark and Kenneth Gibson and coming all the way through to Ras Baraka. When I become the mayor, we become the mayor. Yeah, but there are contradictions and tensions all in that and fractures. How, how do you imagine in this in this real-time, real-world struggle we're engaging in, as we are clear ideologically and increasingly clear as we study and practice, how should we engage electoral politics in your mind? How, how does that unfold? Because I don't have a clear answer. I mean, again, they've been, I've been crucified by some of my ideologically consistent friends and saying, you know, you saying vote for Biden here. I have, I'm like Linda Sarsour, use your best opponent. Now, you heard the $1.9 trillion budget that Biden proposed, which is clearly not enough. But there are people who are about to get evicted that if Trump was reelected, would, would be evicted. You know what I'm saying? Now, this now that isn't an excuse and that isn't a support or endorsement of Biden, Harris or anybody in that cabinet or anything else. But I'm wondering, and this is why I want to ask you the question, because I mean, how should in your mind, tactically, how do we engage? How do we use electoral politics to pursue our ultimate objectives, even though we run the increasing risk of it backfiring on us? I don't know. I mean, do we just continue to heighten the contradictions? I mean, what what's your thinking on that? So, you know, I say to young people, you have to play to lose. Interesting. Say some more, please say some more about that. And, you know, so, um, and, and people are like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I said, you, you have to play to lose, meaning you have to push the limits. And this is, you know, something that, that you and Professor Hunter have talked about. Uh, and, and you sort of raise, right, we've got to look at the patterns of the past to inform That's true. the moves of the future, right? And so when I say play to lose is we, it is about consistency in political education. It is consistency in the way in which we hold not just our politicians accountable, but our academicians and the education structure, Absolutely. because we all live within this educational paradigm. And then the other pieces, how do we begin to, to reframe liberation through an economic paradigm? the abolition paradigm, right? How do we begin to reframe it through an economic, understanding the economics? And I think this particular, this particular window that we've seen black people saying white supremacy comfortably also <laughs> allows us a way, right? How about that, right? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't let into rooms because I would talk about white supremacy. Oh, wow. I've been fired because, right? So. We have an opportunity to begin to change the discussion around economics, rigorous economics, understanding the way in which, not to separate out white supremacy, but the way in which white supremacy is a function of metadata capitalism. And to understand the way in which we deconstruct metadata capitalism 
and support because this is the piece right we see ourselves as individuals within we we, we see ourselves as individual within the marketplace and so therefore i live in my house i do not live in my community mm. i pay my mortgage i do not pay the mortgages or the taxes on my neighborhood so that i live within that construct and we have lost two generations including my generation i'm in my mid 50s me too we've lost that gen you know our generation and the two and, and generations after on how we see our role within the liberation movement we no longer see ourselves and have a discussion about how we move because when you are an oppressed class you must design an understanding of how you exist through that paradigm because it's, you're you're fighting against an oppressor it's true and the and, and so when we oh, oh, um, no, no, professor no. Hunt is on i must be stopping now no no keep i just came on to say how much fire you you were delivering today that fire, and, right and i'm sitting scribbling notes go ahead you, you never know where i mean this is everything this is what we talk about dr carr behind yeah. the scenes yeah. you know the the power that we must have while we both live in these worlds where we are dependent upon people's paychecks to yeah. eat yes so, so we talk about this so it forces us and and one night in miami talks about that we're still getting paychecks from white people so i may be rich but as long as you're getting a paycheck that's tied and even those hbcus that were founded by white people for what purpose exactly it's still about fostering a white narrative and it's still not about us being completely as one gentleman said during one night in miami and i gotta go back to it because the conversations were dynamic thank you regina king how can we show up Muhammad Ali's character as our full selves and not have to worry about how we're going to eat and survive? But if we start with community, because we've done it before. There it is. There it is. If we, is it, yeah. if we've done it before, we, we didn't need them. And then they got mad and bombed us and killed us and raped us and, you know, destroyed. They keep getting mad. The, the goal here is to figure out when white anger happens, which it always will, jealousy and fragility, do we have an answer for it? That's and so, the question. Yeah. I'm out. And so that you're answering, I think, the question posed by Professor Carr, right, to me, which is, so how do we how do we do this? This particular class has inspired me around activism. This class that you and Professor Hunter mm. in. And so I think this that the replication of the education that gets us to understand because as an individual in a classroom, you know, I say, I say to Medgar Evers students, I say, to oh, you are, are you at MEC? Poli political theory, right? Yeah. So I say, yes. you are getting, you, I said, you have to understand this. You are getting a degree from a mediocre school. You're getting a mediocre degree. Mm. You, and, and, and by the way, and this is a larger construct in which that is being described, oh, right? Absolutely. You are getting a degree in a highly stratified, marketplace that Bezos has transformed that you will not get a job at the cleaners in the neighborhoods where the technicians who work for Amazon live. How about that? You will not get a job as a waiter or waitress because the neighborhood, because we're, so, we're, we're not only economically stratified, we're socially stratified. Absolutely. We will no longer cross paths. That is that the intersection, the, the, what, what metadata capitalism has done 
which is why when I talk about we have to address white neoliberal politics, forget the 74 million. Oh, yeah. Shoot. The white neoliberal paradigm that says, Shoot. I am Shoot. shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in the White House. <laughs> right. I am shocked, shocked. Trying to back out. Right. right. And now we have to, we are going to form alliances with our HBCU's stratification. Yeah, you see what they're doing now in Atlanta with that Amazon campus where, yeah, they're going to, it's reinforces stratification for sure. Because the majority of black people who attend public universities are now invisible. How about that? Invisible. Yeah, I mean, interesting. And so young people have become invisible while they are, they're bought into the idea that a degree is going to get me out. It's going to get me connected. It's going to get me that tech job, right? We become in, they become invisible. On top of that, they're also convinced that they're entrepreneurs. Not that you have to have $150,000 really get crash for being an entrepreneur, but my logo right. is now my entrepreneurial Random. path. Right. In fact, uh, I think about uh, Sophia uh, Noble's book, uh, Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, on, I mean, algorithm, the, exactly. You know what and I'm saying? Yeah, and we're participating in that. No, so no this question. is why I think that, that the idea, you know, and I'd love for us going forward, um, Hunter and Carr, to talk about metadata capitalism and the yeah. and and the how we're seeing the patterns of oppression, right, showing up in it's, the new iterations of capitalism because yeah. capitalism is like it's it's it reinvents itself. Oh no question. It, re, it keeps and right, and so we have to look at the patterns and the role that we're playing in those patterns because mo- as we stratify we are rendered non-existent yeah mm-hmm. or, right? or, i mean or, the 1.9 the, the 1.9 trillion you talk about yeah will not cover the invisible society what one at all i mean it seems to me that that's why i ask you in terms of the political implications it seems to me that there's an element of guerrilla warfare yep in play in terms of politics i mean the idea i love this play to lose i mean the idea that if we know we're not going to get the resources we're not going to be able to seize the resource. At this point, we don't have the critical mass, as you said, the organization. And whether it be very local politics, I mean, when I think of federal politics, I don't think of the savior paradigm, the savior model, because as you said, the black elite have done quite well and uh, they will continue to serve a buffer role. I mean, we know that's that's just classic historical materialism. We know that. I mean, race and let's say racial capitalism is going to make it even more obvious. But the idea that the organization works the teaching and learning work. And Dr. King writes about this. In fact, he talks about the fact that education is critical, it's indispensable, and that it's not enough, that it must be combined with social and economic power. And then he, yeah. you know, but but that having been said, you know, I think of the federal apparatus in terms of electoral politics as an apparatus that we attempt to not restructure and repurpose, but in kind of a guerrilla style, siphon off resources to the local, to the to the to the to the type of building initiative. So Mega Evers is a perfect example, I think. Um, Evers, as an institution that's closer to like where I went to undergraduate, Tennessee State, than it would be to a Howard or to a Morehouse right. Spelman. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, working class people, four hundred college for that matter, folks who you know are trying to improve their lives, but then who have access to you. By virtue of the fact that, and I know that there are many challenges, you know, I was with my friend Tony Brown and one of our Karen's colleagues at, at Hunter and listening to um, 
um, uh, Brenda Green, Dr. Green, who, of course, one of your colleagues at, at, at Merit, talk about this this assault Evers is under right now. The question I have is, and I, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out is, is it tactically sound to bang on the federal apparatus to try to filter to an Evers or a Tennessee State or a North Carolina a and And I'm just thinking now exclusively about these black colleges, the colleges where these people are, even if it's just a, a, a sliver of resources to allow us the, the 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 liminal kind of temporary space to to have access so we can still pay our light bill and eat mm. to these young people to get to in other words it seems to me that this is this is less a kind of a, a philosophical debate than it really is a tactical discussion on how do we best gain access to resources that we know are being used to oppress us to, 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 to repurpose them. That, I don't have a good answer for that. That's why I'm asking. No. Okay. Uh, let me, let me unmute Josie. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. And people want to beginning of the conversation, right. Yeah. <laughs> people so, people want to meet your mother, Josie. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and, uh, Kareem hit me back, uh, door. We're going to have a conversation. You and I and your mom at some point. This, this space that we're um, creating is literally going to be a learning space. It's going to be is, the new yeah. school. And, yeah. and in class with Car is foundational, but we're going to be having conversations with Dr. Sophia Noble. Yes. Who, you know, uh, the algorithms of, of, of what is it, algorithms yeah. of hate? Of oppression. Yeah. Of oppression. Um, you, you mentioned um, c- capitalism. What was it? Um, you, you mentioned a couple of things that people wanted you to explain. Oh, for oh, racial, oh, right. racial capitalism. Racial capitalism. Racialized capitalism. Metadata capitalism. Me- metadata capitalism. Metadata yeah. Explain that, please. And so, so because we live in, we now live in a society of metadata. We run on algorithms. We attract. We are um, everything. We you know everything. We are we are a number, and that number gets crunched. So we live right. in a world where we con- we're constantly being crunched. Uh, and uh, you know, in the old days, we could live off the grid. Uh, the right. grid has been the 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 grid has been co-opted, and it's also being crunched. We're being monitored. Uh, and I give an example to the audience. So the reason that folks were taking selfies. Um, last week, they had assumptions that that the algorithms of oppression were only being used on non-white designated peoples. How about that? That they would not be tracked because they under they understand the world. That's right. Through that paradigm. That's so right. They could take selfies, but they could they wouldn't because and they had you know they'd seen at Ruby Rich and in other places that white supremacists had gotten away with what they were doing. That's right. And so taking they could get away with the selfies because surve- their bodies and minds are not are not surveilled. They're, they're, right. There's a number crunching. Have you seen but, uh, Joshana Zuboff's uh, book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism? I mean, it's just it's like a one stop place where she talks. It's about- a one stop place. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And yeah. so it is it is out of that that I sort of coin. It's ah. metadata capitalism, right? Okay. Got it. I call it I call it metadata capitalism because yes. that's what because Bezos has changed the marketplace. He's oh, changed no how we work. No question. He's changed work. He's changed um, how we function as employees. He's changed what you know, like Ford changed. He's yes. changed who we are in the workplace. And, and you see how in. when uh, uh, when um, 
uh, uh, Elon Musk and them zoom past him as the richest people. It's the tech billionaires that have now reduced him to he, he's a peon in the game. And even yes, though he's exactly, yes. that's exactly wow. Yes. And so that's yeah. So and 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 so I try to get young because the idea is when Fanon says every generation mm -hmm. or or become obscure. The famous, the famous quote. Every our, generation it's our gen it's, out of its yeah, relative. Our generation. Yes, right. It is our generation as right. well, Professors Carr and Hunter. We have to do that because we will we'll lose it. Our generation's being lost. So every generation, it is not just the new generation. It's very it true. It is every generation until you true. die. Josie, let me let me say this is very interesting because you know I was thinking I think we may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I'm reading uh Toby Green's book, uh Fistful of Shells. You did. You mentioned that. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because what you've said is so important. Think about Karen Fields and her work on racecraft. I mean, the idea that this this system of oppression will look like it completely changed shape, but the underlying rhythm remains in place. That that oppression and, and the idea that when we were being snatched out of Africa and taken to the Caribbean, taken to North America, taken, the thing that was being taken out was us. We that was the commodity of exchange. And mm -hmm. while there were material uh, exchange like cowrie shells or cloth or, you know, gold, the hard currencies of the West were being formed, the silver, the gold. And so the yeah. thing that we were deprived of, and Toby Green would make the argument, and that's right, I remember now, we talked about this. Toby Green, of course, making the argument that the thing that was being taken out of Africa was that human capital, which is a fungible asset, which is a, you know, as which, you know, you got to keep taking bodies out. And Joseph and Corey, as far as I'm concerned, done a lot different a lot of work about this but I'm, I'm bringing it up to now thinking as you're talking this system in reinventing itself but keeping in place the hierarchy the stratification has it seems now unveiled slowly a capacity to maintain that system of extracting value without with while even pre pre while preventing us from being able to acquire value for ourselves so how do we for lack of a better term jailbreak that rhythm that is not just emerging in place but that began with the the literal snatching of our physical bodies centuries ago well began before that but it drew us into it and now has reformed so that our physical bodies are allowed to walk around as dr king said but the but our minds are now hardwired into this process where our labor value is still being extracted. But I would ask you this to, to finally, because the your students, less so than the ones that are at a Howard, like you said, because they too have been seduced into this idea that it's going to be all right for them. They're going to be part of that little manager class. But your students and students at like the school I went to, or most of the people who don't go to school at all, do you imagine as this process continues that there's going to be a kind of explosion of, for lack of a better term, disposable people. I mean, is this going to be market-based? We, we nope, we, nope, we're going to have to make this a cliffhanger. We're going to have to do a whole lesson on this because we'll be here another hour. I already That's know true. you. I see you. And then you're going to find a book and then you're going to come and it's going to be another two hours. And right. some you're of right. us got stuff to do today. We don't already you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Hours and 40 minutes. We got another question to be asked. I okay. blame you, Dr. Josie, but the goodness of this is you're going to come and teach with Dr. Carr. Yes. Exactly. Yes, you will be teaching, madam. Uh, and, and finally, I can't let you go uh, because a lot of people are confused by the phrase. I know there was a phrase uh, because Don Lemon, some mediate 
mediate. I think that's what you call it. They they uh <laughs> they called him an open open black person or he's openly black or something. And oh, that's, that's interesting. That was trending all last night. But what? <laughs> yeah, it was. But people want to know, uh, Doctor Doctor Josie, what is your blackness is not my Africanness? What does that mean? Oh, interesting. Oh, that's a yeah, that's a um. So I'm gonna try to be quick. Right? Yes, and, and so it's it's the way in which we codify a blackness, the way it has become a hyper consumer product, the way we consume blackness, the way it's designed by the oppressor for us to consume back to ourselves, for white people to consume. How about that? So the message is to white my people, your blackness is not my African. It's not my Africanness. Okay. All right. That's I appreciate right. you. Yeah. Uh, look for an email from me. Uh, Peace out. It, Thank it, you so much. I love you both so you. much. Oh, love you, your mom. My, my mom's not Stay healthy. Free, so. Stay yeah. alive. Liberation, liberation. Yes, yes, yes. Tell your mother hello. Look for an email from me. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All yes. right, Doc. Uh, this is our last last okay. last caller or okay. last, last question asker. Maybe we'll get out before three. Blood <laughs> Jesus. All right. We will. We will. We're gonna uh, uh, our lips together. We welcome Roger from. Oh, Chicago. Roger, that's my man. You, Dr. Dr. Carl, what's going on? Hold on, hold on. There's a running joke in the um that somebody wants to play a game like who doesn't Dr. Carr know? Because <laughs> apparently you know everyone, which I no. think is important. You are the glue. You are the connector no. of no. all people in the diaspora. Yes. Oh no. All right. That's a, All right. This is a target on the back. No, I, I just this is a, this is divine order. You done create this into this space, uh, <laughs> Roger. How are doc, you? Doc, what's going on? I'm I'm good, man. Hey I'm man, what's that? What's that on your hoodie, man? Uh, that's Afroblox. That's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, what's going on? So yeah, you know, I'm I've been I've been working out here. Um, I'm in California now in LA. I've been working in tech for like the last ten years. Yeah. Started a bunch of businesses. You know. Just trying to get in, in 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 the process building up the ecosystem as well. Got to do that. Uh, you know, getting as much of us in the in the space as possible. But um, kind of to go back to the the question that um you know you guys were just discussing. Um, I started a startup last year, Afroblocks, and what we're doing is um, we're a freelance platform that connects uh, freelancers on the continent to people all over the world. I don't know if you you know anything about the freelance economy, but it's a it's a one point five trillion dollar market. Um, you know in the, I want to say over the last 10 years, India and Eastern Europe have dominated. But the, the issue that, that has come into play is that in the next 10 years, there's going to be a talent shortage, right? So I know Wait, you've seen a lot. Walk, walk, walk us through that. When you say talent so, shortage, people without 80, skills, people, I mean, what? 85 million jobs across, across the globe um, could possibly go unfilled because and populations what, are going like, down. What uh, kind tech of jobs. Tech like, like, I mean, what, like coders? Coders, yeah. developers, IT professionals, um, you know, uh, designers, uh, all of, across the board, you know, across the board, even the business development side. So what's happening is populations are going down across the globe, except in one place. So oh, I know no, you've I, noticed. No, <laughs> exactly. So you've, all seen, these, uh, you've seen uh, the book uh, guy wrote, and I mentioned it maybe earlier in some called The Scramble for Europe. So I mean, the why, idea that even Europe is going to be overrun by non-white people at some point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why, that's, re that's the reason I wanted to really hop on and, and chop it up with you, because I want to get some, some, uh, academic support behind some of these theses I have in, in terms of the business side. Um, going back to the shortage, so it's 85 million people, 85 million jobs that can go unfilled. Populations are going down everywhere, um, except Africa, of course. 60% of their population under the age of 25. Under 25. And most of that, they're like under 15 or something. It's like insane. Exactly. 
Exactly. So the way I look at it, the way I look at it, Doc, I feel like it's a it's an opportunity uh, for someone else in this world to go into Africa, take advantage of of, of you know the 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 potential um, and exploit our people again, right? And I say as as a Pan Africanist, as as a true Pan Africanist, right? As a Black American or whatever, American Black, African American, well, American well, African. As Howard French, the uh, writer for New York Times, his book Africa, uh, China. I'm sorry, Africa, China, Second Continent. I mean, there's a whole shelf of books. Right, it, they're already there. So, so okay. let me ask you. Let me ask you, Roger. Um, how do you imagine we? What do you think we should be doing by we? Because again, there's this whole idea that Africa requires external assistance and you and i both know and i think probably everybody Not at all. Know Not at all. that the thing africa needs is the thing frederick douglas told white people black people need in america leave us alone i mean because right, right. so you my, know any, my, anybody my, spending time in africa knows look that's where it's at <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, leave so these people my, alone and they're gonna be my, fine uh, in fact you don't want to get left uh, <laughs> and we come yeah. <laughs> what, what, do so, you, what do you think so so my co-founder that just that's what i want to touch on my co-founder is from zimbabwe um he's from harari he's actually in harari now Brother Tangai Chodo. Um, and this was this was his thing. You know, I came on, he reached out to me for advice because we worked together in the past with um a brother's uh Karen might know Sinclair Skinner. You know, he was doing some stuff with Bill Mari. Um, and I met this brother Tangai, and you know, we chopped it up. But he came to me earlier this year. He's like, Yeah, I got this idea. I've been hooking my boys up with jobs, it's taking off. Like, yeah, you know, do you think there's something to it? And I'm like, Yeah, of course. And I I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff at the time. Um, and after a few months, I saw myself diving deeper into it, like, because I saw the problem that was coming ahead over the next 10 years and the opportunity, how it could either be us getting exploited or us, you know, building some. some oh, 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 the, the, the L with our name on it has already been manufactured, brother. We're going to take exactly. the L unless we do something about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the way the way I see it is we're all, you know, wherever black people are in this in this world, right, we're, we're citizens of the globe. Like we all have to approach our problems in different spaces. The one thing I see moving a lot here, and I know it doesn't work for everybody, but like I see a lot of push towards entrepreneurship on our side, you know, building businesses, building ecosystems. And the 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 cheat code for a lot of people in the tech space over the last 10 years has been to hire offshore talent to kind of build their back ends and things like that. So we're making that connection right now with our people here in the States. If you got a business, whether it's a it's a it's a small mom and pop shop or it's a startup and you know, it's just you or you and two people and you don't have a designer or you don't have a software developer. We can walk you through that process and get it done affordably. Like we never say it's cheap or anything like that because our brothers and sisters, they got the same talent. They just live in a space where, where you know, the, the cost of living is a little lower so they can, you know, adjust so to, their rates. So to what, okay, so now to what purpose beyond the assistance? That's 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 kind of the question, right? Like the... The commercial part of it, the 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 building and whatever, you know, we got to play that part of the that's game. Fairly, that's fairly straightforward. Yeah, I see that. But now, so now, where 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 do you imagine that? Then let let's assume that not only is that level of network level of access achieved, but it 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 supersedes even your wildest our wildest imagination. Yeah. What would then be the result of it? The result of it would be that anybody in the next ten years, twenty thirty, when Google Amazon and any of these, uh, Alibaba, any of these other companies start calling. And I'm glad you said Alibaba because people in the yeah. United States think Amazon is <laughs> Nah. <laughs> there, there, there's an infrastructure. So so here are the problems right now. Oh, wait, wait. Now. Well, I'm calling for what? To buy? To, to work. 
Because they're, they're going to come. They're going to come for talent. They're going to need people to do these jobs. They're going to need people to do This isn't about independence then. Let me let me jump in. No, I mean for the last six years, I started off actually with a Tech Tuesday on the Karen yeah. Hunter show. Yes. Because uh Prince, before he died, was trying to get a million kids to learn black boys to be exact to learn how to code and he was working with Van Jones. It never ended up happening. Prince died, of course, and Van Jones you know moved on to other things. That said, you know, it was my commitment to make sure that we I know about this unmanned, millions and millions of unmanned jobs, which is why he wanted to get a million kids, black kids in the hood to learn how to code because those jobs are going to be there. So it's been, I've been on this mission. Sinclair Skinner, I love blackpeople.com, Howard graduate, engineer, and also, uh, you know, uh, Dominican Republic, uh, black man from Howard. Uh, um, we have a, a brother named Dele Atunda. Tande from London, Africa. There are there are so many people involved in this. So the, the challenge, and, and I want to tie this up because we won't be able to answer this question on of this class, Roger. What we must do is build that infrastructure that you're talking about because you're right. Ghana and Nigeria alone have more young Black people under the age of 18 than any other place in the world and oh, they're yeah. smart they speak yes. english yes. and we need that capital it won't be transatlantic slave trade again not on my exactly wife. that's it, that's, it, that's the point i'm getting at and i, and no. I think Doc, what i'm saying is those people are going to come regard they're either going to come and have employees they're, they're going to come, they're 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 gonna come they're and have contracts they're... with black people sorry I'm sorry. Yeah, right. it, yeah, they it, already. It's going to be. It's going yeah. to be. They're going to come and they're going to hire employees where they can be able to dictate and do what they want, or they're going to come and they're going to contract with black companies to be able to carry out these jobs that they want to do. And and I'm saying we can all participate in that across the so, pan, so pan African diaspora. Let's do this, Roger. Across, off, the, across off, the whole board. Let's do this off mic. Let's get together, build a mm -hmm. plan. Um, part of the thing that we're building in this new platform, there'll be a think tank. So it's not just about community. It's not just about classes and lessons. We're going to have places where you can build your neighborhood and have a discussion. Of course, there'll be book, book clubs because people want to talk about books. But this is bigger than talking about books, y'all. No, no, no question. So there should be a space in there where we build this thing that we want to see happen. I think yeah. we talk a lot, but you can do. I know. I see you. So yeah. let's 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 get together yeah. and let's get it done because we have the capacity to do that. So yeah. you didn't ask a question; you came with a solution. No, so yeah. I challenge you to actually. <laughs> Which way I would expect that, Rob? But I, but I want I want to, I do I do want to hit you up, Doc, because I do want to draw back on some of the some of the past uh, experiments with with Pan Africanism and and how oh, it's yeah, no question. And some of the pitfalls and and how can we justly you know incorporate that. It's capitalism because that's what it is, and that's what we got to play with right now. But how can we do that in a, in a humane and just and just way? You know what I mean? Without exploiting anyone. I think ultimately, I would have to come down on the side of Martin King, and you know, that's really that last year of his life. He was mm -hmm. really heavily hitting on those those ills of materialism, militarism, racism. You know, by materialism, he's talking about capitalism. Yeah. And in fact, um, one of his close confidants who. The Kennedy brothers and said he had to get rid of Stanley Levison. This is a book called Dangerous Friendship. Ben Cameron has written actually several books on relationship. Why do Dangerous Friendship? Stanley Levison, Martin okay. Luther, and the Kennedy brothers. You know, yeah. King, King is really writing about the fact that you know capitalism can't be reformed. There's no more right. form of capitalism. But that haven't been said. I think, and what Karen is saying, you know, is so important 
the space that she's building out, like what we're doing right now, the conversation we're having, the role I see, you know, perhaps the role for me, somebody like me, and all of my colleagues, again, we, we everybody sees, you know, the two of us every week, but, you know, I'm, we, we're part of a whole lot of people. You, you saw Josie, for example. We provide a little bit of points of entry to exactly what you're talking about, Roger, the memory of what we have done. So that then, having been fully informed on what we have done, what worked, what hasn't worked, what we should probably back away from, we can then strategize and, as Karen says, do, execute in ways that will allow us to transform the society. And so I'll end with this very quickly, because as Karen said, this is the beginning. When we look at a Martin Luther King, the idea that we should think about Dr. King as we're reading and talking, which is that one little role, that point of entry role, part of the point of entry role, we should now set down the Washington Monument stuff, set down the I Have a Dream stuff, set the white-facing, anti-racist, all that stuff. That stuff is a distraction. And that's why it will receive the kind of generous funding to be the center of race conversations. Race conversations are discussions about maintaining whiteness. Do not make any mistake about that. So when people say, yeah, we need to talk about being anti-racist, we need to talk about equity, we need to talk about justice and social, yeah, all that's about maintaining that, that stratified hierarchy that we heard Josie talk about. And so, Roger, when you talk about the coin of the realm of the world we're in now, the technology, the, the, the idea, that's all designed with the idea of keeping the current system, and by that I mean the political economy, in place. If we're going to change that, we have to imagine a world in which that is not the organizational logic. Otherwise, we continue to teach our children that your objective is to master that game. That game can't be mastered. And that's why, finally, as we appoint the, post these points of entry that involve those of us who study you know, the, the movements of our people across time and space, we've got to realize we have all the language we need, not only to think through a world that we want, but to think about the places where we've come close to or imagined that world. And then going forward, we draw from that and have the momentum and build this different world because the one we're in is un unsustainable. Either we're going to tear it apart and build a better one or it's going to collapse under its own weight. And the way it looks now, it looks like this thing is getting ready to crack. There's not going to be another round of this because the ball is going to evict us as tenants. The ball is going to get rid of human beings. So this is this is literally life or death for the for the species. And if it's got to be Africa to save the species by saving ourselves first, so be it. But this can't be a conversation about capitalism no more because that's not going to work. We're going to die. <laughs> you understand? So, hey, I'll stop. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Um, yeah. Well, so as it was in the beginning, so shall it be. Um, let me thank you. <laughs> Uh, listen, I'm, this is all divine order. Uh, the yeah, fact that Josie came in, again, I don't know any of these people who DM me. I don't know them. I just put them in. You know them, apparently. No, I, apparently, I tell you who know them, the, the, the force that is moving them and moving you through your fingers. Listen, and then she talks about algorithms and metadata, and then in comes the tech guy, right? No, this is, this is how it works. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to imagine, have you had Professor Noble 
Oh, she's been on a couple of times. That's what I thought. I thought I remember that. You know, um, and talked with my talked about my buddy Ed Ed Young about Blackbird. I mean, like these things, and then he brought up St. Clair, who emails me and texts me just about every day. My brother, um, at Howard, uh, Howard. I mean, it's just it's 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 not bizarre. I think you know you never thought you could live to see history play out, but that you'd also somehow be a small part of it. It is um, humbling. So I want to say every week we come in with with an edict, you know, to inform, you know, to engage, uh, to to drop these breadcrumbs. And then what ends up happening is transformative. So I just want to thank you for participating, man. I don't know. No, 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 no. Listen, I it, it is a real honor. I wish that. Oh, man. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come. We'll come up. We'll come Listen, up. Um, I don't know where we're going next week, but the ancestors do. So I just want to thank everyone. Listen, since we're talking about algorithms, hit that like button. Doesn't cost you anything. Yes. Hold on to your coin. Uh, I promise you, you know, we're going to launch something that's going to be, um, to me, th- the next thing. And I want to thank the team again. Thank you, Kareem and Donica and Carl and Urias and all the folk that are participating in this. But yes. more importantly, Dr. Carr, your time is so valuable. And um, this is the only give up it willingly. You, no, this is the only reason to be. I, I can't, and I want to. I, I want to not only thank you. I want to re- remind everybody. In March, when this plague hit, and we, you know, I'll never forget standing in the parking lot outside the, the the library at Howard and saying, you know, we're not going back. I don't know what's going forward, but this is the moment when we can begin to try to build the thing we need. Because now we're all going online, and so Karen, when you envisioned this and you started it. You know, I didn't know where we were going, but I knew it felt like, oh, this feels like the thing. And so not only thank you for me and for everybody else, but the the, the feeling of excitement. I feel like James Weldon Johnson in the longest way as he was writing and he said, this is the creative feeling that allowed this thing to come through me in a few minutes. And here we are a hundred years later, everybody's singing it. Man, my brother made that up in 20 minutes, man. But when the thing gets you, that's the moment. And you have seized this moment, sis. I appreciate you for that. You are my brother. (laughs) Yes. I love you. Love love everybody else. Thank you all for being here today. Yes. Uh, See you next Saturday.